Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2021, and we are in the midst of what we are calling No Theme November. Essentially what this means is, well, uh, Kyle, my regular co-host, is uh, very busy with some real-life shit. Uh, so I've been taking it upon myself to reach out to guests across the internets uh, to assist me in reviewing any number of films of which there is no theme across the entire month. Uh, so in joining me uh, for reviewing a film today, I have uh, someone I, I greatly admire on the internet, a fellow podcaster by the name of Richie uh, from the Super Media Bros podcast. How's it going, Richie? It's going great, man. You've been doing all right? Oh, yeah, I'm doing just fine. We've been talking wrestling. We've been talking Nick Cage. We've been having a grand old time this morning. That's right. <laughs> it's always a good time if you can talk about Nick Cage and wrestling together because at one point I believe he was supposed to be the title character in the movie The Wrestler. Oh, man, that's an alternate cut I, I would I would have loved to have seen. I think he could have done a lot with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I mean, Mickey Rourke really did make that his thing. Like, that, that movie basically is the Mickey Rourke story, except like substitute wrestling for boxing or something um you know that is an alternate take on that story that i absolutely would have loved to have seen it looked at darren aronofsky so can you call it cage match like straight up can can you call the movie cage match <laughs> he's just kind of looking at him like i don't think i can do fuck it yeah let's do it <laughs> it's like so so you want me to approach the academy uh for your consideration uh cage match as directed by darren aronofsky for your consideration at the academy awards we have a sequel we have a sequel already written cage match 2 rage in the cage <laughs> i'm telling you <laughs> he would have tried to sell it <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of nick cage though uh at the super media bros podcast uh, you're in the midst of like what is it called nick cage month or nick cage november nick cage november yeah and it was just random like we we didn't have this planned out until probably late september because we generally plan a lot of our content out months in advance and i didn't want to do just another month of episodes and then do like a thanksgiving based episode because we did that a couple of years in a row and it was fun but you know i was like let's do something different what are we gonna do and then it just hit me. I was like, what if we just did a whole fucking month of Nicolas Cage movies and just call it Nick Cage November? I don't even care what we cover. Let's just do it. Like, the concept is there. Let's just fucking do it. And then and then Cody was like, oh, my God, yes, like, let's let's do it. So that, there you have it. And we just were like, well, what movies are we going to do? And I was like, well, let's just do just stuff from probably, like, mid-2000s forward because, you know, his older material is, you know, he's still Nick Cage, obviously, but... I think a lot of his more memeable roles have come currently. So I was like, let's let's do this and let's just let's just have a blast with it. And that's so far so good. <laughs> We're one episode in. So <laughs> Yeah, as his uh, as his property and artifact holdings have increased, uh, the zaniness of his roles has uh, in kind. <laughs> Basically his taxes have gone up. Yeah, he is a national treasure in real life though. So let's, you know, let's just acknowledge that. <laughs> I mean, there's your pitch for National Treasure 3, <laughs> Finding Nick Cage. Exactly. <laughs> it would be a very made up film where at the end of the road it's like, it would be kind of like The Last Crusade or something where it wasn't it wasn't about finding the MacGuffin, it was about finding yourself, 
finding the true Nick Cage. <laughs> and the friends we made along the way. <laughs> and the true Nick Cage is just Nick Cage, but like with a shaved head or something. <laughs> it's like, all oh, right, man, this feels a lot more comfortable. This feels like a lot more me. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna match that it's gonna match that leopard jacket nicely. Mm. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, some of the some of the jackets I've been seeing them in for. Uh, I think it was for that Shion Sono film. The uh, was it Prisoners of the Ghostland? Yes, I, th- I think those. I think they were like uh, behind the scenes stills from from the making of that film. I'm I'm pretty hype about seeing that. Same. <laughs> Same. Uh, but yeah, uh, for catching up on cinema, we actually did a catching up on Cage Month. I think a couple of years ago at this point. God damn, we've been doing this for a minute. Um, and yeah, uh, mining the depths of Nick Cage's filmography is always a joy. So um, I actually just listened to your uh, Wicker Wicker Man uh, the review. Wicker this Man, Wicker Man uh, review this morning is a grand old time. I'm looking forward to whatever comes in the in the coming weeks. But um, that being said, uh, being as it is no theme November, and you are our esteemed guest, uh, Richie, uh, you want to let the folks at home know uh, what film it was that you selected and uh, why. <laughs> and why say wicker wicker say man man now say wicker man wicker man no, I, <laughs> I um i decided to do the 2006 film by satoshi kon paprika now the reason i chose this one i'm a huge satoshi kon fan and i have been for a very long time uh the first film of his that i or I say the first film, the first work of his I saw was the Paranoia Agent series on Adult Swim. And I never knew who it was that did it. I just remembered seeing all these random episodes, and I caught them out of order completely. I was like, these are so weird and cool. There's got to be some kind of connective tissue. So I wound up finding them on DVD years later, and I went to go see Spider-Man 3, the Sam Raimi one, in 2007. So Paprika didn't get a stateside release until, like, I think later in the summer of 07 if i remember right and i remember seeing the preview for it like before the movie started and i was immediately drawn in by the music of all things i was drawn in by the music i was drawn in by the visuals and like all the you know the quotes they put at the beginning of the screen you know it's like oh um they're sitting there like oh uh the, the japanese are reaching for the stars you know leaving like you know american animation behind and it's like well duh that's always been a thing but you know and then and then the trailer just kicks full blown in with all this just barrage of shit being thrown on the screen if i'm being very blunt but it was so like enthralling i was like this looks amazing and when i found out who did it i was like holy shit no wonder it looks great like the guy that did fucking paranoia agent did it so i started tracking everything down because i sadly forgot the title of the movie when I left the theater. I just remembered the visual aspect of it. So I scoured IMDb for three fucking weeks trying to track down what the name of this movie was. And when I found it and I found who it was by, I went and watched Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, like the whole nine. And I came to the conclusion that Satoshi Kon did not do a bad movie or series at all. That man was a fucking genius. But Paprika was probably... I wouldn't say it's my absolute favorite because it's hard to pick a favorite out of all his works, but it was the one that caught my attention the most out of, like, obviously from seeing, like, that was my first film of his, like, that caught my attention from just a trailer. So when I watched it, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was a psychological thriller and animated, you know, kind of how Perfect Blue was that psychological thriller horror kind of aspect to it. And 
Tokyo Godfathers and uh, Millennium Actress were far from that. So this man has done like all kinds of genres within, you know, his little world. But Paprika just felt like the culmination of all his work put into a film, which sadly it is his final film because we're, ne we're never going to get uh, Dreaming Kids, which I was crushed by. I cried when I found out he passed away. Like, I loved that man's work that much, and, and as a human being was just kind-hearted from everything that I'd ever read about him, was very just good to his family and his, his crew. And it sucks when you lose an artist like that. He really just, he had the whole world ahead of him, but he left, like, a huge mark in, like, the couple of decades that he was, like, around in the industry. Yeah, uh, very unfortunate that he, he passed in 2010. Um and his his legacy is is felt like worldwide like like i know there have been a lot of people that pointed out that perfect blue bears a very close resemblance to uh some of aronofsky's work uh speaking of aronofsky uh requiem for a dream and then of course uh, this film paprika uh some people theorize that uh christopher nolan may have gained some influence from it for the making of inception um but yeah the, the man was not even 50 years old when he passed and as you had said he really was like batting a thousand like he really had not had a single a single failure or a single like bump in the road that you could easily point to amongst his filmography as like a, a failure or like a, a fucking up of any sort but um yeah he, truly incredible artist uh, he has a lot of themes uh that serve as like a through line for like almost all the stories in his filmography um and that's something that for me personally i always gravitate to i auteur theory is one of those things that you either put stock in it or you don't i'm one of those people that somehow manages to game the system and like waffle back and forth between like standing standing in both zones i i put some stock in it but not enough that i would argue with anyone about it um but when you look at his work you can see that there there are these themes that he he kind of obsessively touches on and a lot of it has to do with dreams and and fantasy connecting to reality um and it even extends into his into his cinematography and his editing style for his films. He his transitions are masterful. Um, I I love the way he has these dreamlike transitions that he finds a way to like work them into almost all of his work. I have not seen everything the man's made. I, most notably, I have not seen uh, Millennium Actress. Um, however, Perfect Blue and Tokyo Godfathers and now Paprika. This was actually a first time watch for me. Um, I've seen all of those, um, and he, he has this trick that he likes to employ where uh, sometimes he, he makes a big show of it, where he'll jump from, from moment to moment and, and scene to scene. He'll like jump in, entirely into different realities, different settings, just with a single camera movement or a single cut uh, through editing. And sometimes he makes a big show of it. Other times he does it very subtly, and he's trusting you, the audience member, to keep up and it shows a lot of respect from from the filmmaker for his audience because that's something that a lot of big budget hollywood films just won't allow for where it's just like no we, we got to make sure that the mouth breathers and the cheap seats can can keep up like like we don't want to lose them um but he does that shit all the time it's always it's a simple trick but it's always impressive right like you mentioned you know the seamlessness and everything because there is a shot well there's a ton of shots obviously but what I like about it also is that like not only does he trust you to you know follow along, but there are times where he purposely leads you in for a bait and switch on some of these. Like there's a sequence in Paprika where Chiba and them they go to investigate the missing DC mini, and they go to 
this apartment where you know one of their coworkers that they suspected has like stolen it and she goes into this basement and then it leads to this amusement park and she's going to go hop the railing because she sees the, the little doll on the ferris wheel and then she's about to fall off the balcony and gets caught like by the time that she gets there you've for, you've kind of forgotten because you've been so used to weaving in and out of this shit already and I, and I really enjoy little moments like that. Like, I remember the first time watching, I was like, holy shit, she almost died. Because you're already attached to this character by this point. Yeah, and the skillfulness of the animation does a lot to really sell that effect. Because it, it really does take a skillful animator and, and skillful use of all, all technologies and assets at your disposal to like give a slight sensation of vertigo from a drawn screen <laughs> like right like to, to create the feeling of standing over a ledge and actually instill that feeling in your viewer you really have to be very skilled uh, to pull off that particular trick in animation in particular um but to just give a, a plot summary of paprika um would you would you like to to do so or would you would you like to pass the baton to me for that one uh i can do it if you don't mind oh go for it yeah, so basically in, in this film, it deals with a device called the DC Mini, and the DC Mini enables a team of uh, therapists to be able to access your dreams and treat you with therapy. And, and the way that it works is like it actually like brings your, your dreaming sequences in your brain onto like laptops, and they can actually analyze it. And it's a highly experimental uh form that hasn't even been approved yet because there's not even locking code mechanisms to be able to access so like anybody could just get their hands on these and access your subconscious which uh coincidentally is the main plot point of this film that happens and it's kind of a mystery in that aspect where they believe it might be an internal job and it's almost a whodunit at that point they don't come out and say it's a whodunit but you're kind of like okay well who the hell has stolen these items because at certain points in this film People are going from having normal conversations to not making any damn sense whatsoever. Nine times out of ten, they wind up jumping out of windows or going into comas. And basically, you're dealing with a um, a sleep terrorist at this point. And it's not yep. like the actual plot written description of like the studio, but that's pretty much the plot point of this film. Yeah, it, it it's a very meandering story in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's very, very fitting that dreams... Uh, serve as kind of the the foundation uh, for a lot of the territory we're exploring because at a certain point the the movie kind of just adopts dream logic uh, in regards to its plot progression and it it is somewhat jarring but again at the same time it's like the director's just trusting you to just go along with it it's like maybe quit asking questions and just treat it as if you're viewing someone else's dream and like dreams oftentimes have incomprehensible elements to them they have their own logic to them doesn't necessarily make sense uh, according to the laws of reality but it, it finds a way to like work itself out and by the time we get to the the final reel of the film it it kind of has that vibe to it where it's just like i think we i think we just literally went off the rails and yet they somehow stuck the landing like i have to applaud them for that because that's that is not an easy trick to pull off no it's not and you know i'm not getting to the ending just yet but like i know like the ending scene which you're talking about it was so perfect. Like, it's it's hard to, like you said, like stick the landing after such like a ride that you go on with this movie, especially with this film. But it was such a great landing. And it was just so full circle. And it was, you know, 
I don't often, I, I didn't at this movie. I, I cried my eyes out at Millennium Actress because I, I, like, I will warn you, if you haven't seen that one, dude, like bring tissue. It, it's an amazing movie. It's probably one of the best dramas I've ever seen in my entire life of any genre. But at the end of Paprika, it didn't get me that badly, but it was one of those like very heartwarming slash like I see what they just did. That was beautiful storytelling. And it's like you have to appreciate it. Like I, I don't care. Like that. That's that's cinema. That is what I love about cinema in general. Like to take you on an emotional ride, and especially with an ending like this. It's not like oh, it's the greatest ending ever. But like for this story, it was a perfect ending. Yeah. Uh, in particular, the way the characters are set up. There's just a couple of stray lines of dialogue that kind of set up the ending for it. Um, and if you catch them, it makes it all the more rewarding. Um, but I do think it's interesting that I have seen this film occasionally advertised with the tagline, I think, finish the dream. Um, and I feel like that that's kind of a, a like a concept tagline for the narrative for the film, because by the time we reach that final reel, you, you kind of carry that message in the back of your mind in regards to more than one character. In fact, it seems like like kind of the thesis behind a lot of the story in a lot of ways. But uh, Richie, how would you like to tackle this one? You want to go like front to back or do you just want to schmooze for a bit? Like, see where this thing goes. Dude, we can do a little bit of both because I can imagine that we'll talk about it a little bit and probably veer off and then come back, which is not unlike a Satoshi Kon film. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I was about to say. That's kind It'd of be perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, man. I mean, okay. So, like, the movie itself, uh, it oh, the way it opens, I, I want to mention that, too. Like, as we're I, go ahead and get into this, I guess. So, when I saw this... I was like, okay, is this still a preview? Is it like, what the hell is this? And it's just this little clown car that shows up in a spotlight. And of course, a big ass clown just pops out of it. I was like, well, okay, I see what kind of shit we're getting into already. And uh, did you watch the sub or the dub? Uh, actually, that was a very important question I was going to ask you. Uh, I watched the sub. How about yourself? I watch both. I always watch both. Like on days okay. where I want to just have, have it on in the background as like comfort movie, I, I put the, 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 uh, the dub on but then i watched the sub this morning you know just because like that's usually how i watch anime so but anyway yeah so the the clown gets out of the car and you know it's like ah now it's the greatest showtime and then it's just this grandiar of circus you know shit happening there's a big crowd but then you see the main character detective konakawa just kind of walking and you know he's given these dialogue he's like he's given this dialogue like oh uh uh, they're here, or he's here, or you know, I can see him, blah blah blah. And you see a, a, you know, a female clown like holding balloons, and she turns and she's like, "What?" Like she starts having dialogue, and then he moves along, and then there's like a clown mask on the back of you know a child, I guess, and then the eyes on that move talking with him, and then you kind of realize, okay, this seems like a dream sequence, kind of like what the hell is happening? Well, it turns out that like he's actually having his dreams analyzed as we as we're watching it in real time because he turns around and he sees you know the uh the master of ceremonies in the middle of the ring point him out in the crowd and he's like all right ladies and gentlemen turn your attention to this man now one two three and he all of a sudden he's in a cage in the in the dead center of the circus and everybody's kind of pointing and laughing and then like the konakawa that's in the crowd has no face it's kind of you know shadowed and he's like oh there's there he is you know go get him 
And then freakishly, a bunch of people with Konakawa's face just bum rush the cage. And it's really jarring if you haven't seen this ever. And you see that, that's kind of flipped out. Like, I wouldn't know what the fuck to do if that was actually happening to me. I was about to say, I mean, the entire crowd, both like men, women, children, uh, a little person wearing a ringmaster's outfit, all bearing the face of a Japanese J. Jonah Jameson. Yep. That is frightening. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That will that will cause you to shake just a little bit. Right? And the whole time they're they're rushing the cage. Give me pictures of Spider-Man. And the whole time they're running at him. <laughs> I mean, coming from a whole crowd, coming from a little person wearing a ringmaster's outfit. No, no, sir. I'm waking up. <laughs> Wake me up now. Exactly. <laughs> Freddy Krueger's just hanging back, just like I'll come back later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, or he's sitting I, there. I with, can see no, you're busy right now. <laughs> or knowing him, he's sitting there with popcorn in the crowd. Ah! <laughs> <It> was like. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a Robert Englund uh, zinger to throw in there, but there would be something. Right. He's got. He's got like a hot dog on his uh, on one of his razor gloves, just eating it off the dog. <laughs> <laughs> this way to the egress. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I love the way the sequence is put together because um, one one reason why I, I really love animation, in particular hand-drawn animation, uh, is because the way I think of it is a lot of times if you look carefully enough, you can find like a, a thesis or a, a core concept uh, of execution uh, in, in the form of the animation that, that the staff is trying to achieve. Like right. there's a, a core thing that everybody's like, we are signed up for this challenge. We're, we know it's hard, but this is what we want to do with this thing. And God damn it, we're going to do the best we can. If we try our best, we can do anything. Speaking of anime. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so like, for instance, like one of the, one of the uh, like two examples I can think of are uh, the road to El Dorado, uh, which say what you will. I, I actually kind of dig that movie. I think it's fine. Um, Gold was something that the animation staff on that one really wanted to try to get right, uh, because traditionally that is an effect that is difficult to render in animation, uh, hand-drawn or or digital at the time. Um, and then Monsters Incorporated, just the entire character of Sully, uh, the hair on him, was a technical hurdle that they had to get over just to make the fucking movie. So what did they do? They put it on display in like 90% of the shots in the movie just to like flip the bird and say, we fucking did it. How you feel about it? It's great, isn't it? <laughs> love it though. I yeah. love it though. And in this film, um, there are my God, the animation of this done by a Madhouse, by the way, who is uh, one of the foremost Japanese animation houses. They do fantastic work, and maybe more importantly, they're able to do a wide variety of things. Like the the character models that are given to them, they adhere to fairly strictly, and some of the character models and and the art styles that they're they're intended to work from very wildly so you can't just like point to a single animated product from madhouse and say that's the madhouse style they do fucking everything and they do it exceedingly well uh, but one thing i noticed and there are so many different concepts at work here but the first thing like the first shot you get is a this like molding or, or squelching effect because the literally the first thing we see on camera is a miniature car drive into the center of a spotlight in a circus and then a full-sized clown steps out of it and you get to see him squeeze out of it so he doesn't just like emerge from it we get to see like his mass pour out from it and just the the physics at work uh through every frame of the drawing uh this is an effect that we'll see continually throughout the film uh, in particular people changing shape and form and and just the character of tokita 
like the the husky fella like the way yep. he whenever he turns his head his cheek and his neck kind of like squish into his face that is not easy to render in animation that's something you take for granted that's like no dude there's a lot of physics at work there's a, there's a lot of hard thinking that goes into rendering each and every frame of of this character's movement and how his mass moves about so I, I was really drawn in by that. That's like, oh, I, I think I think we're going to be getting more of that, and we most certainly do. But that's just like one of the insane number of concepts at work that we see in this animation. But I loved uh, how the introduction of the dream elements in this opening sequence begins subtle and then instantly fucking just slam the pedal down to the floor. <laughs> yep, and all driven. By, and I want to mention this before I forget, all driven by Susumu Hirasawa, who, has, who was a frequent collaborator with Satoshi Kon on all, mo, most all of his, his works. And uh, a musician that I admire just anyway. I love his music, period. I've loved his music before I knew who Satoshi was and after I knew who he was. And that music in particular, whenever, like you said, they just jump right into it because he sinks through the floor of that, of that cage. And all of a sudden, he's Tarzan. And he's swinging with Paprika, which is the the lady that is accompanying him in this dream, which you you find out is actually his therapist later, but it's just an alter ego. But anyway, they swing from like a Tarzan scene to a a, a thriller on a subway chase or a train chase where he's being, you know, trying to be garroted by a, a mystery assailant. And, you know, she helps him out of it. She smacks him on the head with a briefcase. And then all of a sudden they look like they're in some kind of a romance comedy where... He's a photographer and like, you know, he's like, do it again one more time. And she smashes the guy over the head with a, a guitar and he takes the picture, but then he sees the perp running and then and all of a sudden it cuts to what his, his actual biggest recurring nightmare has been, which is he is having a hard time catching a perpetrator on a homicide case that he has been working. And it's the same recurring nightmare of the victim being shot and falling down and the perp escaping through a hallway into some light. And every time that he goes to chase this person, the, which I thought this was such a cool effect. I mean, even back in 2006 and seven, at the time, that was really forward thinking how they combined the CGI background elements with the hand-drawn traditional animation where the floor starts waving and getting warbled out from underneath him and he just falls into a white abyss. And then you hear a voice after he's, he's done falling saying, what about the rest of it? And at first you're kind of like, well, what the hell is that? And, that? and that comes into play later, like, you know, towards the end of the film and actually Konakawa's entire story arc. That is a very important line in the film. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's kind of the through line for his entire his entire arc. Um, and they, as we had mentioned, they really do stick the landing, I think, with his character in particular. In a lot of ways, uh, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm a dude. But um, I, I found myself really gravitating to his character. But more importantly, like we get we do full spoilers on catching up on cinema. So if you've been listening to the show for, you know, a minute or two, you, you're well aware that we're just going to ruin everything for you. So maybe just go out and watch the fucking movie. But um, maybe the most endearing quality about the character for me personally is the fact that he's a cinephile. Um, and even from these early stages in the film, I think it's somewhat intentional on the part of the director uh to kind of signal to you the viewer that like if you saw the trailer for the movie you know the film deals in dream material and then you see all these wild things happening to this character in rapid succession and if you have a, any sort of background in film you you recognize these snapshots these aren't purely fabricated from imagination these are memories uh, in the form of films that the man has seen 
Um, and the garrote wire comes directly from from Russia with Love, the James Bond film. Uh, that, yep. And uh, apparently, Roman Holiday is the the rom com with a uh, when uh, Paprika Jeff Jarrett's the fella <laughs> with with oh, a guitar. Great. <laughs> great reference. All right, take that, slap nuts. <laughs> and then, of course, any number of Tarzan movies have been made over numerous decades. So I don't know exactly which one this is referencing, but the point is. I think it's very intentional that you're across these references, you, the viewer, are expected to maybe pick up on at least one of them. The one that I definitively picked up on, because like Tarzan's a pretty broad thing. Sure. Like, like, like across the globe, people hear Tarzan, they think, oh, and they think like gorillas and naked dudes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 Trevor, correction. Everybody just thinks of Christopher Lambert and exactly nothing else. Just just Christopher <laughs> Lambert with long hair in the jungle. <laughs> but for me personally, at least from Russia with Love was something I could latch on to. And I was like, ah, I think I know what that's a reference to. And of course, it pays off later in the film. And it, it pays right. off really handsomely, actually. It's a very nice setup and a, an extremely good payoff. But um, Yeah, I thought so, too. Thank you so much for referencing the composer, by the way. Uh, Susumu Hirasawa, is, he's excellent. Um, he, of course, caught my ear initially with Berserk, uh, Kentaro Miura's uh, Berserk from 1997. Um, he did the soundtrack and the opening theme for that. And uh, you can tell it's the same fella. He has, very similar to Satoshi Kon, uh, he has some concepts that he seems to obsessively throw himself into, a lot of like fractal stuff, a lot of repeating cadences and rhythms and, and phrases. Uh, it's something that the two of them, like, there have been numerous articles published about how they continually inspired each other, um, mm -hmm. and it translates to wonderful things on the screen when they're paired up. Do you mind if I throw a piece of Susumu um, trivia your way? I encourage you, absolutely. Okay, so at one point, I can't remember what tour it was, but he did a uh, concert tour, uh, mid-2000s, I believe, and he did this thing where he wanted to do audience interaction with his set. So he would put phone numbers up on his video walls and he would encourage the audience to dial these numbers. And what would happen when they would dial these numbers, the cell phones in the audience would actually be playing pieces of his music live in real time on stage as he was like switching between the different phone numbers to compose the music live as it was happening right there. And it was the coolest damn shit ever. And in mindsets like that, are what make Susumu Hirasawa and Satoshi Kon's pairings perfect for one another because they are both out. They well, Satoshi was Susumu is outside of the box thinkers, so it was it was perfect. Yeah, and it even translates to the films of this film in particular, where when we have a when we have one of the the major beats in the plot being about the dreams colliding with each other and creating just a mass of dream reality invading the core reality. It may as well be any number of like crowdsourced so sounds and beats uh, forming together to create a mass of sound that turns into music. Um, and it's it's wonderful uh, to hear a director lean so heavily into his com composer for inspiration uh, right. because you can absolutely tell that the two of them gained something from their partnership together. And it really translates to wonderful things on film. In particular, I did read that the, uh, the parade concept uh, that is revisited over and over and over again yes. in this film uh, apparently came from uh, the two of them kind of conferencing together and Satoshi Kon realizing like, oh, I think I think this music that he's putting together, I think I know exactly what needs to accompany it. And when you if you listen to the music in isolation, 
even separate from this film, you can kind of picture something at least texturally similar to what you get in the actual film. And brilliant piece of music, by the way. I mean, the whole thing, obviously, but that that is a highlight for me, even though like they go back to it so many times. I mean, I even like the white white tiger field, obviously, like the main the main theme of the film. But God, Parade was so fun. It was so just. I, like, there's no real word to put there to accurately describe it other than like just it's it's like mania just happening like very visually right there like just all these colors all this like random shit like refrigerators microwaves frogs with freaking horns and you know just this grandiose shit just happening at the same time you know and it it, it fits so well and it's I wanted to mention this also before um, we moved forward on the film uh, about the Roman holiday reference. That, that absolutely is like, I'm, and you're absolutely right on that. Cause I was watching that this morning and as the credits got closer to the end, uh, they actually did like give thanks to Paramount pictures for Roman holiday. So, Oh yeah, no, you, you absolutely have to. <laughs> I mean, if you use the poster from the thing, if you visually reference it, you, be- you better fucking pay the piper. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Pay the frog pipers in the in the parade. <laughs> like pay pay them. <laughs> Last thing on the parade, which again we'll probably find excuses to talk about again. But uh, the the music actually reminded me quite a bit of uh, the Geno Yamashiro Gumi, uh, their work on Akira. Um, yes. Was it the kids' room theme uh, that plays when the teddy bears with milk are coming out of them? And so it has that it has the same vocal like ululation of the pion 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 pion. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, I love that soundtrack too, and and that's that's another great score I could go on and on about. But yeah, that Absolutely. there's a lot of same nuances there too. I, I um, mean, if you know the concept behind the 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 score for Akira, apparently it was a bunch of amateurs just thrown in an auditorium and making mouth noises, like not mm-hmm. trained singers or or choir members, like yep. very similar crowdsourced noise that forms into music. But the parade track really does toe that that line between melody and cacophony just like really beautifully yeah it really does yeah because the Acura soundtrack was actually written like without even having seen the film they just wanted something that was going to sound futuristic and traditionally japanese or traditionally foreign like that at the same time and they delivered (laughs) no it's 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 one that i revisit very frequently Um, me too it's a personal favorite of mine me too but yeah our our opening sequence is just like i i love that the the music accompanies like the literal descent into just like wild dreamland mm-hmm. where um like the first hint that that we're in a dream world is the teleportation like going from the crowd into the cage um but then on top of that when all of himself are charging at him i notice that like the the bars of the cage are bending inward which kind of defies physics it's like i don't care how how strong that little person bearing your face is they're not going to bend you can't bend steel beams <laughs> it's like no. but but he falls straight through the floor and then yeah we get this parade of of just dream imagery and then the last bit as as richie had said is this recurring dream that unlike the other ones which have an element of danger to them this one has an element of severity to it that you can tell it's unwelcome. This is more akin to a nightmare. And there's even like visual hints that this is like a quote recurring nightmare in the form of the person who is injured or dead falling in this hallway. There's a couple of frames of it that keep repeating. So he never fully like settles on the ground. He, he just, it's the same shot essentially playing out. And yeah, slow motion I, I think, too. <laughs> and, and in slow motion in, in all the grim detail of it. But 
I think I think what really lends a lot of impact to this is the later reveal in the film that he is a cinephile and therefore it makes sense that his dreams would be pre- presented cinematically. So it gives it a visual language to it that is is not completely foreign to you because it's basically just like watching a series of movies that have been wildly cut together without any seal, any real rhyme or reason to them. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, after that, he wakes up in a hotel room and uh, he has a little uh, chit-chat with uh, the character Paprika, uh, who's kind of an avatar or an extension of a different character in the film, uh, Chiba. Uh, and this character, by the way, is voiced by Megumi Hayashibara, uh, who is a anime veteran. She's lent her voice to many, many characters over the years. Uh, Lena Inverse from Slayers is one of the big ones. Uh, Rei Ayanami from Evangelion is maybe the big one. Um, but the the big one for me personally um, was uh, Konakawa himself. Detective Konakawa, by the way. The J. Jonah Jameson looking fella. Uh, this fella in the Japanese version, I can't speak for the English dub, uh, is voiced by Akio Otsuka, uh, who is, of course, the voice of the Japanese Solid Snake. And good God, I could I could listen to this man do a David Lynch and read me the weather every morning of every day. And I, I, I would just be like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I would do a Hannibal lecture and just, oh, thank you. <laughs> I absolutely love both of them, but uh, Akio Otsuka in particular, he's awesome. Yeah, they, they've got voices. Like even even some of the English dub have have voices where I would I would listen to them say anything. Cindy Robinson is the one that does Chiba and Paprika's voice in, in the English cast, and it, she's been in a lot of stuff too. And it it's cool to see a lot of these, you know, people that you, you are familiar with that are still getting roles. And it's always fun. That is always a game for me. I always sit there before I, you know, Google who's, who's doing what voice. I always like, Oh, who they sound familiar. Who, who are they? You know, I always try to figure out like, who else do I know them from? Which is a weird thing to say, like, where else, who else do I know them from? Cause like, <laughs> these people, you know, voice characters that either you've grown up on or are, are actively still, you know, watching or, you're just curious in general. So, yeah, but Cindy's done a lot of, of voice work herself and, and as have a lot of the other English actors. But again, going back, I like the, I like the, the Japanese voice acting, obviously, because the, the inflection is there and then like the, the translation of the subtitles are a lot more spot on, you know, considerably. So. Yeah, I, I tend to lean into the, the sub the subbed version of any Japanese animated film I watch. However, I've I've really noticed this, maybe you have as well, like in recent years, maybe within the past half decade or so, uh, voice acting uh, in in the English-speaking world, in, in America anyway, is really, really taken off as, as like a career path of choice for people online. Uh, there is a voice acting community that is sprawling. Um, and what's more, by extension, I feel like uh, dub casts uh, for Japanese products, uh, the prestige, there actually is prestige that comes with it now. Whereas back in the day, it was just kind of like work for hire kind of stuff. And there was there was mm-hmm. no prestige behind it. People didn't really care because, you know, we didn't really have the Internet, so we couldn't really look these people up. Uh, so you were just kind of an anonymous player. And it was oftentimes expected that the dub would be inferior to the subtitle version. Right. But because we have this rush of talent nowadays, like there are a lot of people out there, a lot of animation enthusiasts who like a hundred percent are committed to the dub version because that's their cast and they appreciate the performances because at the end of the day, even if it's a translation, 
it's still a unique performance and it has a unique player behind it. So it's really fascinating to see being like a, a, a dub artist, like actually be a, a prestigious title these days, as opposed to back in the day when I was renting shitty VHS tapes from that one <laughs> shelf at Blockbuster. <laughs> and, and, you know, back in the day when Brian Cranston was still regularly doing voice work and stuff for these things, like, right. nobody gave a shit about any of the people involved in those. If it wasn't Frank Welker or Peter Cullen, we didn't care. <laughs> no shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which... Uh, I had a concept uh, for a for an office like a like an office esque comedy that would be based around voice actors, and Frank Welker would be like the big man on campus. He'd be dressed <laughs> like like imagine him dressed like Snake from The Simpsons or something. <laughs> he's just like the hot. He's like the Fonz basically. He just like rolls into oh the God. office and like occupies the the booth for like eight hours at a time and he's just like yeah i just did like 300 different voice roles in one sitting no big deal welker out <laughs> yeah and he just finger guns the whole way out like, guns. Hey. and then you just put him on a you put him on a skateboard and just have him literally slide yeah, just drag him off. because <laughs> good god that man's imdb is hilarious like Dude. It, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you go you go look at a lot of these voice actors, you know, roles, and you just scroll and scroll and scroll, and then like three <laughs> hours later, I'm finally out of the 2010s. Holy shit! And you just keep scrolling and scrolling. It's, yeah, it's so, great. Some though. of these guys, it's like like Fred Tatashiori. I don't know how you pronounce his name, but like him and Frank Welker. It's like if you've ever heard a cabinet door open or a cat in a movie, you've heard these guys. <laughs> Chances are, yes. <laughs> oh shit. Uh, but yeah, Konakawa wakes up in a uh, hotel room, and he's mm. he's got himself a spiffy robe. Same with Paprika, and uh, the the real like meat of what is explained here, and this is more just an explanation, is the the concept of the DC mini. Right. Basically, Paprika is here to explain to Konakawa, and by extension, us the viewers, that there's a device which Richie had explained in the plot summary called the DC mini, which allows you to. Uh, enter other people's dreams and apparently the the core concept for this is for therapeutic purposes more than anything uh, it's yes. meant to have like medical applications for psychiatry and psychoanalysis and whatnot and uh this is definitely the case with konakawa because this whole exploration of his dream realm uh is an attempt to kind of uh, get him to confront some personal demons and uh essentially finish the dream uh, which he can't, he doesn't seem capable of at this point. Uh, but very quickly thereafter, uh, the next sequence that follows is basically the explanation that, oh, hey, you know that that device that we literally just told you about like 10 seconds ago? One of them got stolen. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I got I to gotta, uh, point out the visual gag with uh, Tokita in the elevator whenever uh, Chiba, because like... Uh, before she gets there, you get the entire uh, title sequence, which is really neat. It shows uh, Paprika kind of skipping around town, um, and the skipping is almost a little bit like Perfect Blue uh, when Rumi is skipping all over town. So there's like a little homage there. There's a few Easter eggs to his other movies uh, throughout this film, but you figure out like this is kind of the reveal that Paprika is actually Atsuko Chiba. So when she pulls into the therapeutic center that she works at, she goes to the elevator, and there's there's. <laughs> There's Tokita. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, he's he's kind of turning around. He's just like, it, which I always reference the um, I always reference the dub here because it's kind of funny the way he the way the line delivery. He he turns around. He's like, 
I'm kind of in a really big jam. And I'm like, yeah, you fucking are, dude. Holy shit. Poor guy. I feel bad. I'm like, my my God, this poor son of a bitch. And, you know, he, he just mentions to her, like, the DC Mini's gone. All three of them are fucking gone. Like, they're <laughs> the three that they had, like, oh, it's gone. Oh, no. Oh, no. All three of them are gone. And she just looks at him like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and they, they go in. And she's on the phone with um, the... Which I guess it's their, um, not necessarily like their boss, but it's it's the head of their division, I would guess, or their partner in the field. And he's he's little he's this little short, portly fellow, balding, gla- big, big old like goggle looking science eyeballs, and he's out there on I guess it's like the top deck of this building, like because a lot of uh, structures in bigger cities actually have like courtyard looking areas that are on top of some of the buildings and stuff. So he's out there with his dog and shit. And he just kind of is like, uh, so it was an inside job. And they, they just deduce right there that this was an inside job because obviously this is a very important piece of technology. And it's, uh, it's, it's very much, it very much could fund or get another company completely ahead of the game where they're concerned. So initially it's thought of as, Oh shit, you know, somebody's just trying to dupe us and, you know, get ahead of it or whatever. And there's some plot points here where the terrorism thing comes into play because the chairman actually brings this up. He's like, this device in the wrong hands is not good. And everybody there kind of berates Tokita because his kind of arc is that he's this genius of a person, but he's very childlike. And he didn't put any security codes on these things. So anybody can just access these at any point in time, which also means that anybody that has been connected to any one of the sleeping machines has basically their their door to their subconscious kicked wide open for the taking. Yeah, absolutely. He is to blame for that. <laughs> yeah, he definitely is. And in that same sequence, when, when they just go into the room because they're like, well, we got to take care of this. Well, they open up the door and there's the chairman who is wheelchair bound. And he and he's this gruff, like pissed off. Looks like nothing is ever gonna make this man happy in his entire life. He's just you know berating them all three basically. But in the midst of this, uh, the the little short portly fellow uh, starts kind of going off talking about oh the uh, the uh, the refrigerators and microwave will lead the way and like the the frogs with flutes and all this other. And you're just kind of like, what the fuck is this man going on about? I want whatever he's having. I want whatever acid this man <laughs> dropped before coming into work because it's very obvious that if you're going to work in the in the field of sleep and psychoanalysis, you got to be on some kind of acid. But we, we find out that uh, somebody somebody just dropped a little bit of that DC Mini on, on his ass somewhere, and uh, he runs and dives out of this fucking window. Gleefully at that. <laughs> oh, dude, gleefully dived is like... Putting it lightly, that you ever you ever play Mario Brothers and you and you run and you fall off the side of the stage, but he's still like like his feet are still running. That's him, just just out the window. I was about to say he's like Shane McMahon finding the highest thing in the room to fall off of. Jesus Christ! <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, I gotta exactly. climb that and jump off of that shit. <laughs> I gotta go coast to coast out of this window. It's like no, no, you you really don't, but but thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wait, don't do it, don't do. It. Oh, he did it. Shit. Oh, he did it. <laughs> it's like, that's the yeah. Third time this night. Yeah, <laughs> and you, you get the uh, the, the the local authorities are called. All right, we'll be there in five. And he just turns to his partner. God damn it, it's him again. <laughs> they just drive off. <laughs> like, we don't even need an address because they've already been there five times the previous week. So, <laughs> but no, it uh, Shima is Doctor Shima is his name, and he. 
you think he's dead right here. I mean, but this leads into the parade sequence. Like there is an entire dream that is happening in, and it's not even his dream. This, you find out that this entire parade sequence is, is a giant, um, it's, it's a giant dream that eventually gets shared by everybody, but it's all, it's all based around, uh, the partner that we, I think we mentioned earlier, the partner of, uh, Tokita, his, his best friend that they think has stolen these DC minis. It, it actually winds up being his dreams, which we'll get to that like shortly. I really love the the reveal uh, in reverse order where we have his his breakdown and then him tossing himself out the window and then we cut to the parade because it's like, oh, that's what he was seeing when that happened. Yeah, I can see why he'd do that. <laughs> it's like this is madness. I mean, it's it's gleeful madness, but yes, this is right. absolute total mayhem and chaos. Um, but one thing I want to point out about the parade, and I just kind of put this together uh, when I was looking at. Uh, Satoshi Kon's background as an animator because one thing that's really fascinating about the animation industry at least in Japan anyway I can't speak for this country but um, a lot of times you start from very humble beginnings and there is no assumption you will get anywhere it's just you are the worker bee your name will be in the credits no one will really take any real notice of you but if you put in your time and you keep your head down and you don't rock the boat, there's a chance that, you know, maybe you'll get you'll get the privilege of directing an animated product someday. Um, very few individuals reach that those heights, but that's that's the world of Japanese animation. You just kind of have to love it and accept it's not going to love you back unless you're really fucking lucky and or really fucking talented. Uh, in the case of Satoshi Kon. Um, I think it's very fitting that uh, both you and I brought up Katsuhiro Otomo uh, and Akira uh, because the two of them crossed paths very early in Kon's career. And in fact, in recent years, Otomo has kind of like stepped away from directing films and he kind of got obsessed with doing anthologies. And maybe right. it's because of maybe it's because of the dynamics of the animation industry and, and his understanding that not everybody gets an at bat. It's like, maybe I should use my resources and my renown to promote people uh, to do short films under my umbrella. Uh, so he's done a lot of he's done a lot of good things for a lot of other people, a lot of other Japanese animators in the form of these anthology products over the years. Um, but Rojin Z, uh, have you seen that one, Richie? Yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently Satoshi Kon worked as an animator. That was like one of his very first gigs. And the parade imagery is a striking resemblance to some of the imagery in Rojin Z. Uh, yes. So it's kind of, it's one of those things that it's like, huh, maybe he he brought some of that with him into this, this his last project. Um, and in fact, we mentioned there's some musical connections there, but it, I couldn't help but notice that the parade imagery was very, very similar to some of the imagery in that film. Yep. Um, like all those little Easter eggs that we were talking about earlier that he just kind of has sprinkled throughout this movie. It's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, un unfortunately, there are no pipes and tubes and stuff swirling about, so that's how you can tell it's it's a Satoshi Kon film and not an Otomo film. Because right. you gotta look for them tubes. <laughs> that's how you know you're watching an Otomo film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Shima uh, is the name of the guy with the Coke bottle glasses, and uh, Inui is the name of the chairman who is in the wheelchair with the uh, the Moai statue face. Uh, he, for some reason, his silhouette makes me think of like an Easter Island statue. <laughs> um, right? His complexion is horrible. Like he he looks like he's at death's door. God, yeah. He there, there was there was a particular actor. He okay. He looks like if Angus Scrim from uh, is that is that the Phantasm guy? Yeah, he looks like if yeah he looks like if the tall man was like rail thin and his skin was just melting off. 
like, just and no facial hair, just just yeah, <laughs> or no hair at all, I should say. Yeah, he he is silky fucking smooth for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, Tolkita, I just want to point out because um, I mean maybe you can see it. Uh, big Gundam fan right here. Uh, I don't know why. I just mostly like the mechanical designs. The storytelling is fucked. It's absolutely <laughs> fucked, Richie. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've ever dipped your toes into that world, but I've I've had people come up to me and actually try to have conversations about this shit. And it's like, <laughs> you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> like, you, you don't want to open that door. <laughs> <laughs> that reminded me of Cable Guy. You stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> Steven? <laughs> Steven? Steven? My lisp is gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a deep cut. I'm glad somebody got the reference because that is You're absolutely... welcome. You stupid son of a bitch. Of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Gundam. I-, I wanted to point out that uh, the voice of Tokita uh, is uh, Toru Furia, uh, who voices Amuro uh, from the original, the OG Gundam and many of the other subsequent series. Uh, another very, very prominent voice actor. Um, and his... He was he was a wonderful choice for Tokita because like as Richie had pointed out, the concept of the character who is fucking enormous by the way, like both in height and girth, um, at least by Japanese standards, <laughs> yeah, they they definitely like exaggerated that. I mean, in, yes, in, in you know, not to cut you off, but like I I did want to point that out too. Like they they actually do the characters in this film actually make reference to the fact that he's just this large man. And especially uh, Chiba, which it, you know, you, you kind of get this sense that, you know, you you find out later that it, there's a reason why, like you know, she's absolutely. I called this whenever I first watched this. I was like, she loves this man. <laughs> like, she loves this man. She's giving him so much shit. She's calling him a fat slob and that he eats everything. I'm like, she fucking loves this man. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I kind of picked up on that as well, especially because like it is a sign of his kind of childish personality. But he refers to her as Achan. As opposed mm-hmm. to Atsuko or Chiba, which normally yeah. in the workplace you would you would defer to, but he he kind of like lovingly refers to her as Achan, and she doesn't object to it. Like there are other situations in this film where where she'll be talking to other characters who speak in kind of like elliptical terms, and she's like, just cut to it. Like can we can we just speak plainly? But in right. his case, she never corrects him on that, and like you said, it's like hmm. I think there might be some affection there. I think I think those criticisms are coming from a place of appreciation and and understanding. She only calls him out for it one time, and it's at the very beginning when she sees him in the elevator and everything. Yeah. And they're walking out. She's like, "Don't call me Achan." Like, she, and she does it like not even like a like "fuck you, don't ever call me that again." It's more just like a oh, "god damn it, don't call me Achan again." Well, <laughs> remember, Sh- Shima's in the room with them too, though. Right. So it's like right. it's not a private circumstance, which we'll see later. Kind of right. She, <laughs> just she kind of needs in order to explore that territory, at least for mm-hmm. now. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to point out the voice actor for Tokito was really well selected because he does have a youthful sound to him. He does sound, he sounds like a warm hearted individual that is maybe a little naive and it works right. really, really well. Uh, but yeah, Shima does not die after hurling himself out the window and we do get to see the parade imagery. Um, and then we cut to him in the facility, uh, in a what looks like an OR, like an operating room, but he has a device affixed to his head that I presume it's a form of DC Mini, which allows everybody to monitor his dreams. So he's severely injured and and like comatose for now, but he's very much alive. 
and our core cast who are joined by uh, Osanai, uh, who, by the way, is voiced by uh, the fellow who does uh, Spike Spiegel's voice in Cowboy Bebop, yep. as well as uh, Kaji, I think, from uh, Evangelion, uh, uh, Koichi Yamadera. Uh, yeah, he he's he gets all the cool dudes basically. <laughs> like he gets to be the cool dude in whatever he's in. Although they kind of do a to quote uh, last action hero. You put a three sixty on me. <laughs> they pull a one eighty with his characterization in this because he starts out just based on his character model and again those the dulcet tones that silky smooth voice. Um, they kind of reel you in into thinking, oh, he's he's the cool guy, and that's like, oh, he is not cool, not not no, even he's a not. little bit. <laughs> he's fucking terrible. He's an um, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he joins the Scooby Squad, so we have Chiba, Tokita, and Osanai, and they're all looking in on Shib- uh, Chiba or Shima. Uh, we're looking in on Shiba's dream, and we see the parade imagery, and everybody kind of agrees. Uh, that's not good. Um, but then uh, there's a development here in the form of a, f- a familiar face, familiar to the cast, but not to us, the viewers, uh, emerging from the clutter of the parade. One of, it's, it's any number of doll faces, like porcelain dolls. And uh, the face that emerges, everybody recognizes as a character named Himuro. Yep. Uh, who, again, we, the viewer, this is our first time encountering them. But, uh, Richie, am I understanding correctly that he was helping Tokita develop the DC Mini? In fact, yes, uh, Himuro and Tokita, uh, they invented it together. Um, they worked on it together and everything. And that's kind of where Tokita, Chiba, uh, they, they just deduce that he has to be the one behind it. You know, why is he, he he's been missing. And, you know, he's just all of a sudden in Shima's dream. So they go investigate. This is where we get the apartment sequence that we were talking about a little bit earlier. And, um, they, they break into his apartment, and you can look in the apartment and tell how much alike that he and Tokita are because they're, they're kind of messy geniuses, if you will. Uh, the, the house is filled with what looks to be uh, fully built, are being built, or doll parts of different types. And, and at one point, Tokita sees a photo of them together, but his face is cut out of it, uh, Tokita's is. And it's stuck on this orange robot-looking thing that that actually comes into play later, which I thought was really cool. And as the three of them are uh, searching this apartment, is where we get another you know dream sequence that just kind of sneaks its way in. And at one point, it's kind of weird because when Chiba is walking around, Paprika just kind of shows up, but not like in full you know view. It's it's real. Um, not completely invisible, but not completely visible. It's almost like subconsciously, you know, she's just like, oh, be careful. And then she just kind of looks at Paprika and is like, you stay out of this. Not now, damn it. You shut the fuck up, bitch. I, mean, I, I got this. And she just keep walking, walking through. But yeah, that is, that is an important signal, though, that's like, hang on, nobody's wearing any devices right now. Why is Paprika here? Yeah. And she goes through and she does the whole rail jump sequence because she goes to this this abandoned theme park and sees all this shit happening and she sees uh, the, the little porcelain doll that Himuru was inhabiting in the dream just kind of sitting on, uh, I guess, a set of steps or it looks like an entrance to the Ferris wheel and she goes to jump the guardrail and she is 
caught just in time because the dream sequence just uh, dissipates and they are on a high-rise balcony in this apartment complex and she is about to tumble to her fucking death. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a good thing that she's a. It's a good thing she's a very slight woman, uh, because yes, uh, she is caught like about three quarters off the rail here uh, at from a very high height. Osanai catches her, but yeah, uh, some of the visual signals here during the sequence are really fascinating. Um, I I wasn't sure how much stock to put into things. This is a thing that happens a lot when I watch movies. Is like I kind of like digest a lot of details. Uh, but I try to take it all in at once, and I'm not really sure what is important or not. So I just kind of like put in a little pocket dimension in in, in a far off corner of my brain. But um, right. when the when kind of the dream signals start popping up here uh, is of course when Paprika shows up and has a little chat with her alter ego or vice versa. Um, what guides her uh, into this this like she descends a ladder into a hallway which has robots scrawled on the walls, and then there's porcelain dolls everywhere, much like the apartment. But there's also a blue butterfly that flitters into her into her view right. and kind of guides her out into this, this hallway, which leads out into the theme park. Uh, and, of course, the butterfly later on uh, will become kind of like Osanai's symbol. Um, but at this point in the film, it's just, it feels innocuous. It's just like, oh, butterfly. <laughs> right. By the way, that apartment is kind of terrifying uh there's a lot going on there <laughs> yeah like you they when they first go into it the very first time i watched this i was expecting them to find a body like no bullshit i was expecting them to find either uh either his body or just a body of somebody in particular because it looks like a if you don't know after several rewatches that it's just that this guy is like an inventor and he's messy it looks like a fucking murder chamber <laughs> when they walk in i'm like a little bit <laughs> No, it, it looks straight out of Seven or something. It, it's a little bit more well-lit than any of the apartments or homes in Seven. But, I mean, there's the doll imagery, uh, all the face-swapped photos and stuff of the people that Himuro knows, including Tokita. Uh, there's some, there are some porno mags here as well that uh, they very... Uh, again, what's kind of fascinating about animation as opposed to film is that they always say that, like nothing is an accident in film like everything that makes its way into the final product is intended to be there correct uh, some sometimes it's a little unsure if that's actually true uh because sometimes you just catch footage or you you forget to take something out case in point the uh the disappearing raptor from the finale of jurassic park um, yep. that that most <laughs> certainly was not intended to happen but it it is there um in every pressing of the film that exists as far as i know um, but in animation, the level of control that you exhibit over the product is absolute, such that there are no mistakes unless they're straight up like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles-esque mistakes where the wrong colored face bands are on the wrong colored yeah. turtle and the wrong voice is coming out of the wrong lips, which happened every fucking week on that show, and it was maddening as a child. God. Yeah, as a kid, I was like, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's like, why is Michelangelo's voice coming out of Donatello's face? <laughs> exactly. It's like, he doesn't sound like this. What the hell? <laughs> uh, but in this case, I think it was very deliberate that we have some porn mags uh, framed right alongside Osanai, and it just so happens that one of the dudes on the covers has a very similar haircut to Osanai. Um, yes. So it's a very intentional shot. I'm not entirely certain what the meaning might be, but again, it's there for a fucking reason. And some of the developments we'll have with Osanai's character, in particular, in regards to his relationship with Inui uh, towards the end, I think that we're trying to lay some breadcrumbs here for something. Yes. But um, yeah, uh, she, 
we have the stroll through a, a dream fabricated theme park. Uh, a lot of these shots, and this is, I want to say, a thing that Satoshi Kon does in probably almost all of his products. Uh, he's not afraid to like have recurring visual motifs, like straight up, like exactly the same shot, maybe with some rearranged elements. But like Perfect Blue in particular has a lot of repeating images and sequences. Right. Um, it's not afraid to do that. It doesn't feel like it's shortchanging the viewer. It's like, no, we're, we're trying to hammer home a point with this. And we do that here in the form of visiting this theme park in the dream world. And then again, in reality, with exactly the same framing. But the the, uh, the aesthetics of the park are slightly different from, from each interpretation of it. But yeah, she, she nearly takes a header from a very high height. Osanai saves her. And then I think we go have the biggest fucking lunch ever. Dude. 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 I don't know if it's on the way to or from the lunch, but they also accentuate just how big Tokita is because it's like I said, it's either on the way to or from lunch. He's in the back seat of a sedan. And there's a wide shot of the sedan's ass in just dragging the fucking concrete as they're driving down the interstate. I'm like, they did this man dirty. (laughs) Bro, they did this man dirty. And he's like sweating and shit in the backseat, just sucking a bottle of soda or something down. And I'm like, man, they really doing this man dirty. What the fuck? And then they get to the restaurant. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, anytime you introduce a character ass first, like like you you can do that in a yeah. Bond movie, like for a lady coming out of the beach, like coming out of the water or something. But when you do it with a, a, a girthy fella stuck in an elevator door... I'm sorry, he's going to be the heel of, of, he's going to be the butt end of many a joke throughout the film. Literally, funny if they had like an alternate cut where it's like, it's literally just like a, a six and a half minute movie and the end of the movie happens when the elevator opens and he just turns around and then Chiba just looks at him and she's like, what that ass do? And then it's just over. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, if she got a couple more minutes alone with him, maybe that's what we would have got. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> pretty funny but no they, they get to the restaurant and they're having a conversation about everything that just happened and the lady uh the waitress keeps coming to the table and she's like oh, well who had this dish and he's just you know without missing a beat talking just raises his hand and he just starts eating all right well, well who had you know the steak and he's like oh, me and then again like another dish and he's like me and then literally they're talking about the pro- like problems about this uh, uh, arising, and then without missing a beat, Chiba just looks and she's just like, "Yeah, you have a problem too. You eat too much." <laughs> Fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty mean, but you know he had it coming. He had three lunches, yeah. like and, yeah, and like a wide variety of dishes. That truth be told, I'd never tried this, but I don't imagine these things would go together that well. He has a udon, he has a paella, and a steak. Yeah, it's like I mean, those are all fantastic by themselves. I don't know if I want them all in one sitting, man. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, and he's like, I can't fight on an empty stomach. She's like, fight, and he's just like, yeah, against like the the terrorists and the you know the dream, you know, the terrorists on people's dreams, and it's all this, like, okay, that's where the whole child quality thing comes back in because like his response doesn't sound like and like what an adult response to that would be. It's absolutely like. It sounds like a a twelve year old in a Spielberg adventure film or some shit. Like his response almost comes across that way. I did use the phrase, "If we try our best, we could do anything," didn't I? Exactly. <laughs> he has Goku brain. It's it's no big deal. He has Goku brain. He's he's a genius <laughs> where it counts. Um, but yes, he does come across as very naive. Um, but 
the one thing that does shine through from that though is he may be naive but he's also he does have a sense of right and wrong and he does have a sense of responsibility he may he may be all thumbs when it comes to actually adhering to that but he does recognize that he did wrong and it's up to him to fucking do something about it which i would assume is one of the qualities that chiba admires in him is that it's like yeah he he is a righteous individual he's just kind of shitty about the (laughs) follow-through right (laughs) we got to give him some breadcrumbs to get there literally and figuratively but he'll get there (laughs) get them Reese's pieces (laughs) oh piece of candy oh piece of candy oh DC mini oh DC mini (laughs) there you go (laughs) we got this figured out that's right (laughs) but yeah we cut back to the parade and uh I thought the the subtle like differences like aesthetic differences between the initial unveiling of the parade and this this follow-up visit to it it looks degraded like it it looks like a muggy fucking day it looks Mm -hmm. like everybody's melting just a little bit like it looks like this parade was fun i don't know if it's still fun (laughs) (laughs) them frogs are up front man can we get some water in this motherfucker shit No, I'm serious. That's kind of what it looks like. It's, it's yeah. kind of neat what they do because, like, everybody's kind of sagging a bit. And Shima, the the doctor who threw himself out the window, is he's on top of a throne being carried by all the parade peoples, and yeah. like his posture is all slouched, and he just he looks like he's, I'm having a good time. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Not. <laughs> But yeah, he, he looks like his expression says he's having a good time, but his posture says otherwise. And uh, Paprika uh, just emerges from one of the dolls that's on the giant mound that he's sitting atop. Um, and they have a bizarre, uh, nonsensical conversation because he is not right in the head. Um, yeah. But she she basically says the right words to him. Um, and she leans on his tummy and uh, sinks into him. And uh, this, again, calls back to that concept in the animation I was talking about, about things being pliable and stretchy. And and she even changes sizes uh, during this conversation. She starts Mm -hmm. out very small, and then as his attention is devoted more to her, she grows. Um, And then when she sinks into him, she's like, this might be a little rough, bud. (laughs) Uh, And he uh, inflates, like literally inflates. Uh, And he grows out of the tree line, and he pops. His face looks pretty happy about it, so he busting, 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 makes me feel good. I love that. I love that music video so much. But that that was basically him. He just ah, he's like down. But it's weird because it's such a um like the the next shot, uh, not necessarily bad, not necessarily good. It was just kind of different to be like when he pops, you hear like the echo of it and the dog. Like you, there's a shot of his dog on the grass and he just and just puts his head down so it's like did he die what the fuck and then he's just fine you're like why'd you show a sad dog (laughs) why did you show that dog so sad oh god that broke my heart at first like he fucking died and then i saw him i was like you bastards he's alive damn it (laughs) not damn it that he's alive but damn it he was tugging at my heartstrings again but yeah fucking great scene and the fact that like that symbolizes oh he's out of this coma finally and um they kind of have a conversation that's uh, important to the plot too, because at this point, because of his condition and what has happened to him, uh, the chairman wants to shut down complete production of the DC mini and the usage of all the dreaming machines and all this shit. However, he has to decide that through the board, uh, all the board members and being that he is a board member and he's in the hospital, uh, 
they can't do a vote without him there. So Chiba encourages him, no, you're not going to do shit right now. You're going to stay right here so that this doesn't happen. So that kind of takes him out of the movie, not out of the movie, but it takes him out of the picture as far as that is concerned. Yeah, he's still sidelined, but at this point, it's like we we see that Paprika has the power to enter people's dreams and do some good. Uh, so he's very much inhabiting reality again. He will become useful later, but for now, uh, we have this problem with the chairman um, and this conflict with the DC Mini. But I really like the, uh, the episode that follows immediately after where Chiba is on her own and she's walking across the sky bridge. Um, and her reflection in the windows is represented as Paprika. And they have a little back and forth, and it's kind of posited that uh, Paprika is, of course, her avatar, but maybe Paprika is also like an unacknowledged component of herself. Um, so it's like who who is who is actually representing whom? Like maybe Paprika is more true to the actual person than otherwise. Yeah, that's um, definitely her outward personality. Like you can tell. Like I don't I don't typically dive into like any of the Myers Briggs uh, personality test shit on most films, but you can absolutely tell that. The, the Chiba personality is absolutely kind of her drawn in and for introverted side, but the paprika personality is absolutely her extroverted self and all of the, the joys and the childlike qualities that she suppresses because, Oh, I'm a businesswoman. I got to be serious all the time. You know, it's like, Oh, you never, it's, it's that conversation where you're just like, Oh, you never have any fun. Why don't you ever have any fun? Like that's, that's the fun side of her personality, which yeah. I, I think a, a detail I may have missed earlier during the dinner uh, was the fact that they were talking about, like, why was uh, Chiba attacked uh, with a DC Mini? Because she wasn't, like, connected to one and nobody did it. But they said that she's had the most exposure to all of them and and out of all of them that she is she is susceptible at any point in time. She doesn't have to be connected brainwave-wise or anything. They can just infiltrate her ass no matter what. So that kind of makes it, like, makes her even more of a big target. So she's kind of, you know, she's more susceptible than anybody on this entire team. Yeah, so. uh, which makes her absolutely pivotal to the plot. But to, to put an exclamation point on the, the point you're making about the personalities, uh, that conversation with Paprika ends with uh, Chiba asking herself in the form of Paprika um, about, like, what have your dreams been like lately? And she just kind of trails off. She's like, I really haven't had any. I really haven't had time to examine any of my own dreams because I've kind of been busy swimming in other people's. Um, which right. again is something that really plays into the finale of the film where it's like, hmm, maybe we should revisit that later on. And when we do it, it certainly pays off. But uh, then we take a, a harsh pivot uh, back to Konakawa, uh, who is the first character we meet in the film. And it's like, how does he factor into all this? It's like, well, we'll shut the fuck up and I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he was given a business card uh, by Paprika. Uh, at the conclusion of their session at the opening of the film uh, to a website called uh, Radio Club. That was a real working website at the time. I don't know if it's still running, though. Oh, wow. I've, I've never typed in the URL myself, but I, I would not be surprised if some form of it exists uh, to this day. Mm. Um, but basically, he visits the website, by the way, on company hours. Uh-uh. <laughs> not, not cool, buddy. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he's, he's just sitting there. He's like, I've been here long enough. They'll never notice. I'm just the old geezer in the back. <laughs> like I can't remember if he does the thing where you look over your monitor. Like, anybody, he, he does. Anybody, yeah, anybody yeah. around? <laughs> yeah, he does. I've never totally been does. to this website, but some crazy gal in my dreams told me I should go here. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, he goes to the website via his internet browser, and then uh, presumably somehow he taps into the DC Mini powers uh, 
that Chiba possesses on her person uh, just through osmosis or something. Uh, and he's transported to a really fancy bar. Um, and it's really important to note that the, the, two, the two bartenders here are voiced by both uh, the author of the book um, from which this uh, film draws its script from, as well as the uh, director himself, Satoshi Kon. So that'd be Yasutaka Tsutsui, uh, the author, and Satoshi Kon. And I think uh, Kon is the tall one, and yep. Tsutsui is the small one. Yep. Um, and a lot of the things they say are, are somewhat cryptic, but they are absolutely essential uh, to the proceedings of the plot, um, and in particular, uh, Konakawa's arc. Uh, but yeah, Paprika's here, uh, and they have a little chat, they have a little drink. <laughs> it's a it's a nice little conversation and a very a very warm scene um but it also doubles as a therapy session uh whether he wants it to or not yeah because it, it doesn't the conversation steer back to uh like his his movies and stuff like you know like do you like movies or because she starts talking about film because there's a couple of interactions that i i, I tend to still kind of get confused because there's a scene where they're talking here and then like you know later on in the theater but she's asking him basically you know you know, who's this person to you? And because it comes up that he used to do film uh, with his best friend and that they kind of not necessarily had a huge falling out, but they, you know, they grew apart. And essentially, like you find out over the course of like a lot of these conversations that they did a film together that they'd never finished. But I don't think it's like right here that it happens, but like you start getting more of his story unfolding and there's a lot of layers to this dude. And I see why a lot of people are drawn to Konakawa's character because he's a very well-written character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have I have heard and, and read that uh, the character himself may exhibit some parallels to the director um, in regards to like his characterization and his narrative. Um but yeah, largely what what happens here, uh, everything Richie had just said is accurate. It plays out in, in a strange order. But um, what happens during this conversation is Paprika continually nudges him about movies. And he's like, eh, I'm not really big on movies. And she's like, eh, no, but nobody, nobody is not big on movies to some extent. Everybody has something to say about movies. And so it's very weird that you just kind of like say, nah, fuck off. <laughs> like every time I bring up movies. <laughs> um, so they head outside the bar and all the streets are lined with uh, like billboards of all the movies that were referenced uh, during that initial dream sequence. And it's like, uh, buddy, we're in your head right now, and the fact that you know those marquees, that you know those billboards, tells me you probably you probably know these movies. I don't, I don't know if you like them, but you at least know them. You, they are they mean something to you. And she keeps asking him like, "Hey, what do you think about movies? You want to go see a movie?" And he's like, "I don't fucking like movies." And then all the shutters come down on all the buildings. It's like, "Oh, I touched a nerve." Good. Yeah. I don't want to see any movie. I want to see pictures of Spider-Man. Yeah, but but this is a this is a trope that gets revisited a lot in stories from across the planet, but in particular in Japanese narratives, uh, the the precocious, like in this case, a literal manic pixie dream girl, uh, is a thing uh, that is it is a trope of a lot of Japanese stories, um, and this is very much the role that Paprika kind of occupies. She's that little nudge, that little that little like spark of exuberance and energy that people kind of need to like enjoy life. She's, she's the spice. Yeah. She is literally the spice very well named and realized yeah. in this film. <laughs> um, but yeah, that kind of concludes their conversation. And uh, we cut back to the office and good 
fucking god. Um, <laughs> so so you thought she, you thought Shima was bad. Well, there's a couple of folks in lab coats that are throwing a hardcore match in the hallways of this this psychoanalysis facility. <laughs> um and they're just sputtering nonsense. It's like an Al Snow Bob Holly match. Mop buckets, brooms, printers, everything. <laughs> Mannequin heads. <laughs> Dude, yeah. And it's crazy too because like you see the horror on the faces of the rest of the staff and crew that are there. And they've just these two people have just left a trail of shit behind them. Like people are knocked over, the walls have like holes in them, the doors are hanging off the hinges, like shit's just everywhere. And I think at one point it's where Konakawa is uh he's stuck in a crowd in a uh, in a bunch of cars, maybe, and uh he has a panic attack. Like right there, he sees like everything, and I, I I've had panic attacks before, and this was classic case. Like it, it triggered me a little. I'm not gonna lie, and I was sitting there. I was like, oh god, I've been there. I know that feeling and being stuck in traffic. Fuck that, because I want to say like this is uh, where he kind of gets called to this uh, happening at the hospital with these two people, because he does show up at one point, and I want to say this is him leaving the office after his date with Paprika in the uh, Tokyo Club. Yeah, uh, he he comes across the scene after it spills out into the streets. Yeah. Uh, so after the chaos is spread out into the streets, we don't actually see what happens, but we do see blood on the ground. We see crashed vehicles, and we see crazy people being hauled off in stretchers. <laughs> uh, sounds like a really fun time to somebody out there. But um, uh, in the meantime, though, our our Scooby Squad, um, mm. they're kind of trying to trying to make some headway into this case with Himuro and uh, this dream invasion that's going on via the DC, the stolen DC minis, presumably. Uh, so Chiba um, happens across Tokita while he's kind of like scrapping his office because Inui, the chairman, has kind of shut down the DC mini project and their division entirely. Uh, and Tokita just happens to have a t-shirt that has a robot uh, emblazoned on the back of it that matches the image that Chiba had seen uh, when she was exploring the dream previously via Himuro's apartment. And she's like, where is that? And it just happens to be a uh, a theme park called Robot Dreamland, which is defunct and just shut down and covered in uh, moss and, and, and greenery. Um, but they head there in person, so in actual reality. And this is where we get the, uh, the shots uh, paralleling uh, her visit to the same location via a dream. Um, and we also have this recurring image of a doll, by the way, which is kind of just a, a signal that, like, hmm, you're on the right track. Uh, doesn't I don't I don't know if the doll itself uh, exhibits any real meaning, like, but it is it is a very useful tool for signaling the viewer that, like, oh, the the narrative is on track. We are heading towards a development. Um, but as she's approaching the doll, she performs the exact same motion of hopping the rail that she did in the dream, and I love that she hesitates for a second. Yep. It's like last Same. time I did this, it wasn't so great. <laughs> I almost, I almost went full Mick Foley last time I did this. <laughs> Good God, that man! <laughs> oh. like, how many times has that man been killed? <laughs> right, he's got more lives than a fucking cat, dude. I'll tell you that much. Shit. Yeah, you gotta kill him five times before he hits the ground. Then, <laughs> then you might get close to offing him. But good luck with that. And then you drop Shane McMahon on top of him. So then, <laughs> yeah, that's how that's done. It's the it's like killing a vampire. You gotta kill him a bunch, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, she hops the railing, and uh, before she can even get to the doll, though, a, a fucking body 
falls from the heavens from out of nowhere, like literally a Mick Foley. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna say it's Shane McMahon coming. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's from the top of the fucking hell in a cell, uh, <laughs> straight down to her feet. Uh, Himuro launches himself and just oh. falls like fucking flat on his face. And I was like, oh, "Good God, <laughs> my God, he's broken in half! <laughs> Somebody stop the damn match! Somebody stop the damn match, dude!" <laughs> the way he just bounces off the concrete, though, it was so frightening because like he, he lands face first, and then like his body just kind of flops, and his upper half raises up and his face pops up and you're just like oh god and then he just flops over onto his back and it's it's Himaru yeah. with a DC Mini that is it looks like it's just inside of under his skin in his head like it was just planted there but it creeps out like gelatin yeah. almost or just under his it's grotesque looking honestly like not yeah. bloody grotesque but just ugh it looks Oof. like a jellyfish creature is under his scalp, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it it's really intense, and they kind of, they uh, they say quizzically, "Is that a DC mini?" Because <laughs> that's not the one I built, right? Um, but yeah, they bring his body into the office. Um, I don't think they ever explicitly state that he's dead here, but he is most certainly like his consciousness has just packed its bags and t- taken off yeah they do mention uh, that they did they do mention that that like his conscious is almost non-existent at this point he's just kind of a comatose body and his his uh it's not that his consciousness is completely gone but it doesn't belong to him anymore it's kind of how they were getting at yes um which plays into the plot uh heading forward but uh this is where uh this the narratives start to intersect and konakawa actually comes into the office because of all the all the people that work there, uh, you know, spilling out into the streets and just like <laughs> defending their hardcore titles. <laughs> um, but I love this conversation because as soon as Chiba walks in the room, Konakawa is seated and he like there's a music cue to follow it. But like he instantly recognizes without her saying a word like, oh, that's Paprika. Like, I know who that is. Um, and it's Chiba's pretty sly about it. She doesn't like reciprocate. She's she mm. does her her cold her her cold shoulder routine. With yeah, her. but I love that he tries to like ingratiate herself to her because Tokita is large. He largely has the floor during this discussion about what the DC Mini is and its possible applications. And Konakawa keeps like complimenting him and being like, "Oh yeah, that's wonderful research. It has so many remarkable applications." And he keeps turning to look at her yeah. and be like, "Right?" And, she, and at one point she's like, "Are you talking to me or him?" Yeah. Dude. <laughs> it was that it's, was it's great. Cute. It's cute. Yeah, cuz then you find out uh outside that uh Shima and Konakawa are old college buddies. Yeah. Roommates even, I believe, if I'm if I'm remembering right. But uh he he does question Shima. He's like, that was her, wasn't it? Paprika? And he just kind of, hmm. And then he just kind of carries the conversation elsewhere. He doesn't necessarily deny or confirm. Yeah, he just gives a shrug. He's like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they start talking uh, as they're walking outside. And I want to say the, uh, the chairman has been just kind of eavesdropping as he's rolling along behind this long um, trail of you know, plants and, you know, shrubbery and shit. And speaking uh, of come- solid snake, that's when, the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he just, <laughs> seriously, a man in a motorized wheelchair just sneaks the fuck up on them. Right. <laughs> he comes out of the literal bushes. just like, <laughs> <laughs> 
What's up, fucker? Surprised to see me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he does, dude. Like the chairman just has that. Like it's the same fucking look on his face. But like he has that look on his face. Like <laughs> I'll leave you. Like you know, you just like I've been listening. It doesn't say it like this, but he's just got that look. Like I've been listening. I know what you're fucking up to. <laughs> like he's just this grumpy bastard that just needs to go have some fucking oatmeal or something and just roll away or something. I don't know, but. You you get you start kind of piecing together that the the chairman is just not a good dude because they haven't revealed it just yet, but he's he's not a good dude. Yeah, he he definitely has some ulterior motives going on. He's he's, I mean, there's one thing like like trying to like corral a source of great power and and prevent it from being unleashed onto the public or something. But this guy is like he is he's just latched onto this, and he he very much seems protective of it to the extent that's like buddy uh <laughs> like just looking at your face i can tell you're up to no good but some of the words that are coming out of your mouth you're making me really concerned <laughs> with great power comes no responsibility my friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah in this case very much so um but yeah uh, basically we uh we proceed from there and uh this is where konakawa has his panic attack by the way and uh yes also and i has a confrontation uh with chiba in a hallway and basically he he had mentioned earlier that he's jealous of all the people around him uh, because he lacks their capabilities and their their wits. Uh, even Tokita, who, if you look at their character models, Osanai, like I said, is like the traditional, like, we use the phrase in horror movies, member of the breeding pair that survives at the end. <laughs> like, he, he's the handsome yeah. guy. He's the Oxnard Montalvo that puff, puffs out his chest and despite being a ge- geologist, punches out the aliens at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because he also doubles as a fucking street fighter on top of being a geologist. Um, but yeah, he's very jealous of everybody in the lab, and he also objects to what's going on. But then we have this this exchange while uh, Tokita is uh, tinkering around in his office. So he's trying to rebuild a DC Mini. Um, apparently, he's trying to fabricate a new one uh, to potentially correct the mistakes of the old one. But this exchange between he and Chiba is pretty fucking intense. She says all the things that, especially in Japanese culture, you just don't say. <laughs> like, like, Dude. There's airing it out, and then there's just, like, weaponizing your words and turning them into a fucking spear point. It's like, oh, my boy, he stabbed him right through the heart. You you pulled a Ralph Wiggum on him. I, you, you, you did not choo-choo-choose him. <laughs> no, dude, she eviscerated him. She verbally eviscerated that son of a bitch, that poor bastard. Oh, my God. Like, the, you know, and he was even still being like, kind of jokey with her, even in a serious moment, because she said she, she mentioned something to him, and he has these goggles on, and he just turns to her, and he, he makes his eyes really huge with him, and he's like, sounds like a line from a mystery. And he just like, you know, he, you could still tell he's, you know, his heart is there, but, like, his brain has just has him, you know, everywhere. And she kind of criticizes him for building another mini, knowing what they can do. And she basically tells him to indulge in his, quote, freakish masturbation because that's what he's good at, at least in the English dub. And to me, that was a lot more harsh sounding than the actual subtitled version. Cause, you know, that little extra thing, because that's what you're good at. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, I would imagine it's it's maybe a little bit more cutting, a little just in the English dub, because uh, in the Japanese version there's still some measure of decorum on on there. But yeah, the word the words are still the words though, and you know this 
this guy definitely receives the message because she like slaps all the shit off his desk and like he very very quietly just retrieves the dc mini and we see it like kind of spring to life so we can see the the gears turning over in his head it's like i i gotta do right like i gotta do something uh meanwhile chiba runs off because shima has uh basically put her onto the case Uh, i forget what exactly the development is but there's a subtle detail here that i always like to see um in animation or otherwise is a lady wearing heels taken off the heels to get down to business that's it Uh, because because man i that is like one of my biggest pet peeves because in in movies one of my favorite things is uh like martial arts choreography uh just the staging of action in general but like in particular martial arts on film is one of my very favorite things and the most obnoxious fucking thing is seeing a, a lady stunt performer being asked being tasked with performing said choreography whilst wearing heels it's like man like you're just making her job harder she's gonna roll an ankle <laughs> like you don't want Damn. that liability um it's just for it's purely for aesthetics usually but it's it's always welcome to see somebody take off this unwieldy footwear and just take off running because you know that it's it's better than running in those things and i remember seeing that in uh my neighbor totoro actually uh, where she's running in the she's got sandals on she's like fuck this like, like, <laughs> <laughs> like she just takes them off she carries them it's like yeah that's what you do <laughs> but yeah she takes off running and we revisit uh konakawa's dream uh, and it's largely a replay of what we've already seen, uh, so we won't, won't go into too much detail there, but we get the circus sequence, although the dialogue has changed up, and now we're throwing around a lot of film terminology, like you've you've crossed the line of action, is what one of the clowns in the audience says to Konakawa, and mm. if if you, the viewer, are not familiar with what that's referencing, this is where it start. like the references to him having a background in film become like explicit in the extreme, where it's like... Why would the clown say that? It's like, oh, well, maybe I... all that stuff about him saying he doesn't like movies, maybe he was lying, and maybe maybe it's something he actually is passionate and knowledgeable in. Um, and there's a couple of other references to that as well. Um, and then we reach the end of the dream, where he gets back to that hallway, where the, the whole hallway kind of spills out underneath him and like rolls up like a rib- ribbon almost. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then we cut to Paprika, in a cinema like in a movie theater standing up and clapping and saying encore and then we literally repeat that sequence although this time instead of the whole hallway rolling up under him it stays solid so she's just like saying hey that part where normally you retreat like literally retreat from it or extricate yourself from it maybe stay there maybe there's another sequence there that is important to you and sure enough uh, he reaches the conclusion of that sequence and it ends up being him standing at the end of the hallway with a smoking gun and seeing the body falling, uh, bearing his face. And he comes to the realization, hang on, so I killed me? <laughs> it's like in, yeah. in, in no uncertain terms, I guess, yes, you did uh, in, 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 from a certain point of view. <laughs> right. But yeah, uh, in, the mean, in the meantime, uh, Tokita has taken his DC Mini and he goes to visit Himuro, uh, in like the operating room they have in the facility and uh he occupies the same avatar uh, that we saw in Himuro's uh, apartment that would be the like golden colored robot and so it's kind of like this Arnim Zolo looking thing where it's his face projected onto the face of like a toy robot yeah and I hate to say it but the voice and and the personality it's like yeah, I could totally see him projecting himself into a dream as a fucking golden robot, <laughs> dude. Right, and, and it's so it's so him. It's just so it's so 
just spot on. And what I thought was cool is the way they set both of these scenes up back to back. So like you mentioned, he's he's basically going to go talk to him, you know, and he sits he sits down with him with the DC Mini on. And, you know, he's like, you know, why did you steal the DC Mini? And it winds up being this, uh, th- that that doll pops up, and it's not Himaru. You know, again, he realizes it because you start hearing these freakish, like, high-pitched voices happening more and more together and more of them and more of them as they're delivering the dialogue. And then he basically, like, like I say, he, he realizes this isn't Himaru. Mm-hmm. And as that realization happens, you're back with uh, Konakawa and Paprika, having more of the talk about their cinema shit, which is kind of funny because he's dressed up like a typical director would be, or like what we what we envision a director looking like with the shades and like the little cap and you fun, know, all that fun shit. Fun detail. I'll let you continue, but fun detail. Yeah. Is he's, ac- he's actually very intentionally modeled after Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like the, the hat and the glasses were kind of mm-hmm. a trademark of him. So it's like, he this is like the filmmaker of, of modern Japanese cinema. So it's like, yes, this is him occupying the personality that he, he has reserved in his head for it's when beautiful. he's talking about films. It's great. And even his tone of voice, he has a confidence that the Konakawa character doesn't exhibit all the time. So he's like, actually, <laughs> like, yeah, and I've got a mansplain some films to you, lady. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and Kurosawa, if... if anybody out there listening doesn't know like that that is one of the greatest directors that has ever ever lived in fact to the point that on the video game ghost of tsushima there is actually a kurosawa mode to be able to play in complete black and white and it's fucking awesome because it is literally named akira kurosawa mode and you can play like that it's so cool like that's how influential this person was yeah so this was a big reference in, in this film. <laughs> so obviously one of Satoshi's heroes, which uh, is a lot of uh, people that are cinephiles, like th- that man is a, a big name. But yeah, he's he's dressed to the he's dressed to the nines just like this man. But they're having these conversations about uh, pan focus and you know the line of action and all this other stuff. And it, and it's a really cool kind of you know breaking the ice of getting through this this wall that that. Um, He's built up. And so here comes the parade. And you notice it subtly. Like, I thought that was really cool. Like, there's a wide shot of the two of them, and you subtly notice some of the parades spill into the theater from the projection booth. And then it zooms back on their conversation, and then out of nowhere, you hear, like, a horn or something, or a a drum. Like, a frog hits a drum. Boom! And then the the parade just starts, and it zooms out, and they're all in there, and they're like, what the fuck is this shit? And then, you know... (laughs) I feel so bad for for the for the uh, detective because he's sitting there and he's just like, "Am I this crazy?" Like he starts thinking he's losing his mind at one point. He's like, "Am I really this crazy?" And he's not like joking. He's dead serious. I mean, well, I there's that too. great there's that great shot from Paprika's point of view where he's like standing um, like in the in the midst of the parade and he like he's looking at her like he's like. Is this mine? Did this come from me? Please tell me it didn't. <laughs> like, I, sw- I swear this has never happened. Did you bring the frogs? <laughs> they, they're not my frogs, I swear. They're not mine. <laughs> but yeah, right before the parade spills in, um, they're on the verge of a breakthrough. And it's so it's so disappointing for him, for me and him, like me, yeah. the viewer, and the character, because he, he transforms multiple times during the conversation, and he goes from Kurosawa to his younger self and he we even see him wearing a high school uniform so he's like he's just there and by the way there's a a number that he has some anxiety about it's the number 17 
That's right. Which, there's a great sequence uh, during the most recent dream sequence with him where they're on an elevator and Paprika is taking him from floor to floor, each of each of which represents a different facet of his dreamscape. And when she mentions the last one, which just happens to be floor 17, he's like, oh, we don't have to go there. It's like, yeah, I don't mind being... Great. I don't mind somebody trying to garrote me. I don't mind watching you Jeff Jarrett someone in Italy. And it's like, but but that last one, we don't need to go there. And then we get this one shot of all the numbers on the elevator. All of them have turned into 17. Yeah, into ding. <laughs> and he's like, well, fuck. Yeah, I, I laughed at that scene. The first time I saw that movie, I was, because he's just like, I don't ever want to see that again. Ding. <laughs> fuck me running <laughs> yeah it, it's fantastic because uh, i mean the, the whole idea like all the dreams with him are these are supposed to be therapy sessions in the midst of a larger narrative um such that i actually wouldn't have minded if the entire movie was devoted to just his stuff um i i'm happy we got both but i actually wouldn't have minded i, I wouldn't have been bored by that is i guess what i'm trying to say right um but we can't we can't just solely focus on that because we have other problems. We have other fish to fry. So uh, we cut back to uh, Chiba examining now the two technicians, uh, both Himuro and Tokita. Uh, they're both in some sort of dreamscape, and we've started to kind of come to the realization, uh, as Tokita had, that I don't think Himuro is the culprit here. Like, the this dream, this parade, I don't think it's spawned from him. I think he's just an unfortunate caught in the the tidal wave of it uh right. so chiba endeavors uh to head into both of their dreams uh via another dc mini with shima uh kind of keeping vigil over her and uh we revisit kind of the i guess it it's almost like paprika's theme music it plays over the the opening credits of the movie which we didn't talk about in detail but the music that plays over that is absolutely fantastic um, it's it, it's incredible. You should definitely look it up. Uh, this, and, the entire score for this movie is definitely worth a listen. Oh, I was gonna say that's the music that drew me in when I was talking about the trailer earlier. That like the that's the exact one where I was like, oh yes. Like, that's, do you remember if the the music that played over the trailer had lyrics or not? No, it's it was the instrumental version. It was uh, okay. it was the instrumental of it because there there are uh, variations of that theme sprinkled throughout the film. In fact, the sequence you were speaking about earlier when they were questioning Tokita and uh, at the hospital about all the occurrences that were happening where he was being kind of sly with Chiba. He was just like, eh. That is even like a softer variation of that melody with piano. And I did forget to point this out. I, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I totally forgot this earlier. Uh, this soundtrack, in fact, uh, with Susumu Hirasawa was one of the first major uses of the Vocaloid instrument. And very well done, I might add. And it's probably like the most popular uh, female Vocaloid uh, piece that is used still. So that's that's the kind of nuances you hear uh, throughout this theme. It, it has to do with that Vocaloid melody. So that's uh, it's sprinkled throughout the film, either more intensely, softly, mysteriously, action. Like this is this is the full blown. All right, let's get to business. And so where she's like floating down on the cloud. Right? Yeah, it's like yeah. a rousing theme. It's like the arrival of a superhero almost. It, it's it's yep. wonderful. Uh, it's very nice to listen to in isolation, uh, like independent of the film. But yeah, she drops down from the heavens and she turns into Son Goku uh, from A Journey to the West. Uh, and she even has the Nimbus Cloud and the staff and everything. Um, it's, it's almost like the Monkey King too, the, uh, the yeah. uh, Sun Wukong. If I'm, yeah. Is that right? 
Uh, they're the same. Uh, just yeah, different yeah. name. That's what I mean. Yeah, this, it's so fucking hilarious. I'm like, oh my god, what a great reference. You know? Well, I mean, uh, she has the power of the dream world at her command, and it's like part like one of our weaknesses as humans is we tend to lean into the familiar. So it's like maybe she was thinking about that story. Or, I mean, I, there was a live-action television series. of the, There have been multiple live-action television series uh, based on that story in, in both China and Japan over the years. So like maybe she thought of that. It's like, well, I'm falling. Who flies? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, most most like young boys out here might think of like Superman or Iron Man or something, but in her case, it's like eh, it's fucking Monkey King. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> like, surf this damn cloud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, she descends from the clouds, and uh, Shima, his face emerges from the clouds, just to be like, "Yep, I see you." <laughs> like, it's like that's not weird at all. I'm used to this. Um, and she sees the parade, but she does she doesn't intercede because I mean, what the fuck are you gonna do with that? Um, right. So, but she finds like a literal crack in reality. It looks like a broken mirror uh, that represents reality, and she steps through it, uh, and it is a grungy like slum that she walks into. And this is paprika, by the way. Yeah. And uh, she just we get this long sequence of her like walking down these progressively grimier alleys. Uh, so it's not a welcoming atmosphere. And then she comes across a series of dolls, which are kind of like making noises and fluttering like in a in a fashion that's akin to like moths. Um, mm. But all of them are dolls that bear uh, Tokita's visage. Um, and then she transforms into Tinkerbell because we're in we're in a fucking dream. We can do that. No problem. Um, but I love some of the, the contradictions in the dream logic. It, it's like ballsy kind of stuff because we get this moment where paprika steps out of the frame and then we we hold on that shot and then there's a tinkerbell doll in the background without the without cutting away that she just becomes and it's like no there's not there's not two paprikas it's just it's a dream she can just do that like like, it's like there's there there is no logic to it she can just do whatever the fuck she needs to um then she flies through how would you describe the inside of the hollow humeral it's it's almost like a it's a shell of himself it's it, it, yeah it's basically just describing like we were talking about earlier that like his conscious does not belong to him anymore and he's simply just a shell of who he was at this point you know he's not that he's dead but in this world that he does not exist and this is just his his avatar as a shell rotting away yeah it, it's a chilling image it almost looks like so it's it's a giant body that she's flying through as Tinkerbell, but when she comes mm-hmm. out and she sees the extent of it, it, it's shaped like him in the in the doll's rope that we saw him jump from the from the top of the theme park attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the texture of it, it's it's hollow and it looks almost like an insect shedding or something. It's really yeah. chilling to look at. There's a lot of chilling imagery in this that we haven't been going into detail about, but yeah, there's some genuinely gonna, unsettling images in this movie. Yeah, because I was going to say, I remember uh, when I first found out the movie was R-rated and I watched it, I was like, you know, on first watch, I was thinking, why is this R-rated? There wasn't a lot of cussing. There wasn't a lot of over-the-top violence that is usually in an R-rated film, especially like R-rated uh, anime film. It usually would have that, but when I looked at the classification... It said, you know, sexual images and, you know, some other things. And I was like, well, okay. And obviously we're about to get to a couple of those, which are really disturbing, honestly, to look at. But I, the more I got older and watched it more and more, I was like, I understand why this movie earned its R rating in a completely different sense than to what I'm sure you and I are used to seeing an R rating on a film for. And it absolutely has to do with 
the imagery in question because a lot of it is very intense and frightening if you stop and think about it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There, th- this movie does actually have some creepy imagery, but clearly it's an enjoyable experience built around all that. But yeah. <laughs> um, the big reveal, though, is she flies up higher and uh, a tree uh, in the same environment bears Inui's face. Uh, so if you didn't figure out he's the bad guy, well, guess what? He's the bad guy. Um, and uh, she uses uh, he uses his Captain Planet powers to try to lash out at her with some like tree roots or something, tree branches. Yep. And uh, she's screaming at uh, Shima to, to wake up uh, Chiba uh, because that was his job, basically, is to keep watching her as she's asleep and wake her up uh, if shit gets hairy. It just got hairy. Uh, so uh, he wakes her up, and uh, she's drenched in sweat, and she's like, I know who the culprit is i know who has our dc minis i know who has fabricated this this horrible dream parade that seems to be just like latch lashing out and grabbing everyone in its path uh, so they hop into the car and i love the imagery this is like film school 101 type yep. shit. like, I, like I, it's almost I, pandering I, to some extent but it's, i it's pointed really this cool. out yeah i pointed this out to my friend earlier this morning uh whenever i was watching it because like we were watching that sequence, and I was just like, "I want you to listen to the dialogue and watch the drops of rain on the windshield." Thank you. Exactly. It's like it's. We were talking about this last week. Uh, both uh, Kyle's brother Nick and I we were talking about the Blob from 1988, and how it's simple screenwriting tricks and simple audiovisual things like that. That's like, it shouldn't be impressive. Like it's so f- basic and fundamental, and yet every time you see it, it's like. I see what you did there, and I'm not mad at it. Like I'm, I appreciate, I appreciate the effort and the attention to detail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but not every movie does that, and that's why you appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they drive off, and uh, basically the imagery that uh, Richie was alluding to is she's talking about the concept of all, like all dreams coming in contact with each other and being like swept up into a grand, incomprehensible mass, as represented by this parade and the imagery that accompanies that is water droplets on a windshield forming into larger wa- masses of water, essentially. Uh, but they arrive at Inui's house, and he's in, uh, he's in like, his garden, essentially. Um, and he, he does, he does like, I, I don't know if you'd call this a Lex Luthor or a, a, a Blofeld speech or a Dr. Evil or a Ozymandias from Watchmen. He's like, I just did it 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Basically, he just, he dumps, dumps all the exposition, says like, yeah, I did the bad thing. What of it? <laughs> now I'm going to stand up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I did all this shit. All right, now I'm gonna stand up. All right, I'm gonna head out. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. He just like tries to leave. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, you're still here. <laughs> Never mind. But yeah, he gets up from his wheelchair, and we see it. Uh, his legs are act like just a bunch of tentacle roots and stuff. Um, obviously, like plant imagery seems to be like his his core element or something. Um, being as he's inhabiting a garden and we saw him initially as a tree person uh, but then we see Osanai is with him and has cornered uh, Chiba who transforms into Paprika because she comes to the realization oh I wasn't actually woken up I just got 
hurled within the dream to a different corner of the same mm. dream <laughs> so she's like oh shit i'm still asleep <laughs> it's, just, it's like if you die in the dream you die for real <laughs> i said that shit too man i said that shit earlier oh god it was so funny but her you reaction is game, really you die for real <laughs> <laughs> came over man and she fucking the way she reacts though too is kind of funny because like uh especially in the uh the uh, the dub version which is kind of funny because she just kind of this is another dream, isn't it? And she just kind of looks, looks around like real, like, you know, playfully almost. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you should probably be running right now. So, oof. Yeah, uh, she takes off running. Uh, Olsanai gives chase. Uh, essentially, it's revealed he's like a puppet of Inui. The two of them are conspiring together. And they have an odd relationship that is not ever explicitly explored. But the idea is Inui is crippled. And uh, he, there's repeated references to Osanai being like his his physical extension of sorts, and they have some sort of arrangement. It's never explicitly detailed, but the point is the two of them are in cahoots and they're up to no good. Uh, Osanai is kind of the goon that gives chase to Paprika. Uh, we get some neat dream Im- imagery in the form of her becoming like a griffin, and uh, him becoming I don't know exactly which person from Greek mythology, though she does reference Oedipus. Uh, so I don't know if that's supposed to be a painting uh, referencing that particular tale. Um, but yeah, really cool stuff. Uh, really cool dream imagery. We go from that painting into the ocean. Uh, Inui becomes a fucking whale and swallows her. She becomes Pinocchio at one point. That's pretty great. Um, so we go back to the parade. And we see that she is back in her uh, Sun Wukong mode. Uh, but then she is captured and strapped to a table, and we get uh, an extended sequence where the film earns its R rating, um, both in terms of just atmosphere, but also because it commits the ultimate sin in Amer- by American standards of bearing nipple. Um, nipples are no a no no. They're no American good. Cinema. No, Those no, are no good. You can, you can <laughs> cut people's heads off. You can have all the blood and guts you want, but as soon as that nipple makes an appearance, uh uh uh, not doing oh, that. No. Here we go. R rating. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah uh, so she's strapped to a table and uh basically the entire room has a butterfly motif to it and i forget exactly what this practice is called but basically there's a series of pins placed on the table restraining her um and osanai is kind of uh not torturing her but he is most certainly threatening her and uh everything that's coming out of his mouth i think it makes sense to him but we the viewer are like I don't know, bud. <laughs> like, 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 you may, yeah. may want to talk to somebody because you got yeah, some shit you got to sort out. Yeah, because basically, in a weird way, because like he is professing his love for her. Like, he is basically telling her that he loves her how she is. Like, he doesn't like the paprika persona. He and he graphically, like, again, the, earns the R rating very well. Uh, where he places his hand and um and just kind of drags the skin up to her face and essentially just tears the paprika uh, persona skin wise off of Chiba, but while this is happening, if I'm not mistaken, I know Konakawa winds up going and saving her through this theater, but I want to say this is where he also at the same time is revealing more about himself and his friend. This is where he has his ultimate breakthrough. Yeah, so he's talking with the uh, the bartenders uh, from the Tokyo Club, and he basically says that the reason the number 17 bothers him so much is because they were 17 when they were doing all this together with the film and everything, and he talked about how, oh, he was um, 
they did a film together where he was a, uh, they were best friends, but then they grew up and then he was a police officer and his friend was the perp and he was chasing him. And it was just a film where they would just chase throughout and out, but they never finished it. And they were like, well, you know, what happened? And he said, well, my friend got accepted to film school. You know, I quit. I wasn't confident. He was confident with the ladies, confident with his work and all this other stuff. And it basically plays into the sense that, you know, he has had a lot of regret over this because his friend dies not long after being accepted to a film school, a very good film school, and they never finished their film together, and that has haunted him. But they, he, he never finished his film school, and or he never got to go to his film school, and they never did their, they've never finished their film together, and he's, he's also kind of had recurring nightmares about that bleeding into his dreams. So that always hint, that always kind of brings up the reason why the line "What about the rest of it?" comes up. Which that that story does get resolved a little later, but this is the big breakthrough: is that he's been depressed over that, and he's been very regretful and remorseful over the fact that he lost touch with his friend, and they never completed their project, and they fell out of touch, and it's and it's bothered him for years. Yeah, it's and, a it's a really wonderful sequence. Uh, it's very skillfully cut together and edited. Like the presentation of it is, it's the kind of stuff that's like, man, I wish real life could play out so poetically because because like he's he's getting drunk by the way which you know yes. a lot of pe- there a lot of people refer to booze as like truth serum to some extent yep. where it's like it gets you to loosen up it loosens your inhibitions and truthfully like the last time he sat down for drinks with paprika he wasn't really hitting it too hard um to it showed restraint on his end but this time mm-hmm. he's at the club she's not there so he's like fuck it i'm gonna hit the bottle i'm I'm just gonna keep throwing him back until she gets here Mm -hmm. um but then the two bartenders just kind of like hang out with him and of his own volition he just he offers up the story in his drunken stupor and the way it plays out he's he tells the tale of making this film with his friend and projecting on the on the wall behind him is the film that they made or at least the film he had in his head so Mm. he does say it was unfinished so we don't know if what we're seeing is exactly what was shot but the point is this is his reality this is his memory so he's literally like playing back the film that they shot together and uh i guess the concept was during this epic chase between these two people we're supposed to be like intercutting shots of the two characters like living their lives uh, outside of this chase so it's supposed to demonstrate the two characters have history together so it very much parallels his real relationship to this person um, but yeah that phrase what about the rest of it is reference to the film never being completed um, and the, and him feeling that he failed somehow by walking away from the production um, and that's where I, I mentioned the the marketing subtitle for the film is sometimes finish the dream um, which in this case in Konakawa's case is literally like confronting his trauma as well as you know putting a putting an end point to that that film in his head even if it doesn't truly exist and we actually follow through on that it's really beautiful when it comes together um but the dreams kind of merge uh in the form of him coming to this realization and like actually confronting the reality of of his angst and his trauma and then he finds himself in the same theater that he was in with paprika earlier and he sees her current predicament playing on the screen and he's none, he's none too happy about it. And this is where we get that image of uh, Osanai reaching literally into Paprika and uh, kind of unzipping her, essentially, uh, to reveal Chiba underneath. It's funny, actually. I mentioned this movie to my friend last night. Um, and this was 
I said, have you seen Paprika? And he was like, well, is that that movie where that one girl gets like a hand put in her and she gets, un- she gets like unpeeled? And I was like, I think so. Because <laughs> I, had, I hadn't watched it at that point. But like th- this was the image that he retained from the entire hour and a half experience. Unpeeled. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny that like this movie was so much wild shit going on. It's like, that's the thing he remembered. Exactly. But yet, in, in that same sequence, also with the whole R rating with that, and then the nipple, and then up oh, tentacle. Ah, there's tentacle porn. Not literally tentacle porn, but it's because like, uh, his hand. Yeah, his hand turns into a shit ton of like tentacle root looking shit, grabs around her neck and her chest, and like one goes down her throat a little bit. And this is where you find out the extent of the deal that they have with, uh, you know, and, and the body is where they're kind of co inhabiting it. You know, the, the chairman's like, oh, this is my fucking body. That's part of the deal because I can't walk and you, ha- you have to be my legs. So he just kind of pops out of his, um, his shoulder, like two heads, and he's, just, you know, basically giving him shit. He's just like, oh, you're swayed by a female again. And he's like, but I love her. You can't have her. You know, leave her alone. Spare her and all this other shit. And he's just, you know, the chairman's telling him how weak he is and all this shit. And at the same time, Konakawa has busted through the theater wall into this room and he finds her and he's like, Oh, I knew it was you. And he picks her up and he just kind of looks up at him and they're, you know, fighting over each other. And he's just disgusting. And he just like runs out with her <laughs> the way he says it just under his breath. He's like, Oh, disgusting. And just like, <laughs> yeah, short and sweet that really, there's nothing more to say to that. Cause it really is grotesque imagery. It's like, it's kind of like John Carpenter's the thing or something. Yeah, uh, except for the things talking to itself and arguing with itself. And by the way, like Satoshi Kon has a very good reputation for handling female characters very well in his films, but even even he couldn't wrangle his animation staff into not putting a tentacle in her mouth. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm sure he tried, but you know, if you're gonna work people to the bone and give ev- like literally everyone on the staff carpal tunnel. You gotta let them have their fun somewhere. So, yeah, dude. Yeah. So like, they're probably like cutting the scene together, and and like everybody in the room's like, "You're not gonna cut that, are you?" Because <laughs> like, I have feelings about that. Right. <laughs> and 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 might have been the right call also because in that in that same sequel with like with Osanai and the chairman like kind of you know as one person it, it makes them all the more detestable at the same time for for you know you know violating her you know like. They, they did it well, they did it well enough without doing it you know what i mean it's not super explicit but you're absolutely right like in terms of framing them as absolute villains they they follow through on that because i think it's handy that only at like a scene later osanai is killed uh, so it makes it so you the viewer have no compunctions but it's just like yeah he deserved that he's he's a sleazeball he sucks <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i i think this is the exact sequence where he he is uh killed yes right like yeah because it's and and this is this is so fucking awesome how full circle this becomes so konakawa is chasing osanai down the exact same hallway where his his recurring nightmare about about the perp he couldn't catch is his happening and he finally you know he stops and he's just like because it, it, it was this entire dream it's not just the hallway sequence like you see the the um the tarzan sequence and you know the uh, from russia with love and all that shit and you know he's he's like oh get out of my dream and then the you know konakawa looks at osanai he's like no this is my dream you get out motherfucker you know (laughs) so they wind up in the hallway part 
And this is where Konakawa is like, well, my ball sack is dropping for the umpteenth time in my life, finally. And he just pulls his gun out, and he's just like, you know, don't you move. And he fucking shoots Osunai in the back. And so Osunai is now, like, the dude falling and, you know, forward. It, I, I, This is – it's so funny because it's, it's serious, but it's funny. So he ends his movie in his dream right here. And this is all, like, taking place around kind of the same time. So forgive me for jumping back and forth between scenes. So he – He's got an unconscious Chiva, and uh, his his movie ends, you know, and he's he has this, you know, cool hero pose, and it's on the screen of the theater, and he's getting a standing ovation, and he plants a kiss on Chiba. Well, Chiba wakes up in real life and slaps the shit out of Shima, and he's got this delighted look on his face, like, eh, when he fucking gets smacked over. <laughs> it's so funny. No, the, the timing is superb. Oh, it's great. But then on the other end of the spectrum, the chairman and Osa and I are both in bathrobes in a bed together, so it's implied that they have been with the DC Mini in the same room. But reality is starting to mold with the dreamscape because the room looks like it's sagging into a hole and it's melting into the floor. Well, Osa and I's dead body is just slowly, like, face first, like, being sucked and pulled into this hole. And Osa and I is, you know, getting stretched out and going in. The chairman just kind of Pulls himself out. He's like, just so fucking funny the way he's crawling after. He's like, no, that body is mine. You, It belongs to me. I am nothing without you. And he's like grabbing his leg and shit. And he eventually just just fuses with his, his body. And it becomes this black mass. And then you start eventually like through the next set of sequences as we get to the end of this film. Uh, the dreams have all merged with our reality. And there's no question about it because even like news people and all kinds of civilians are seeing this happen. Yeah. Uh, I, I really just wanted to say that um, the conclusion of Konakawa's movie is <sighs> it's spectacular because there's, there's even like a, a funky music cue to accompany it that makes it feel like a seventies detective story or something. Yep. It, and there's a sunset behind him and he smooches the gal <laughs> with while, hold, while brandishing a smoking gun. It's like literally he could just say, Vaya. Con Dios. Yes! <laughs> <And> the <laughs> roll credits. <laughs> uh, it's spectacular. And it's it's well-earned because, like you said, with Osanai's face being projected onto the, the perp that he couldn't catch, he's owning his trauma, essentially. He's, he's taking it from a self-assassination to, like, no, I, I'm beyond that. I've assigned a face to... Like, that's another thing that we didn't mention is that all the fantasies that he was having throughout the film, uh, his antagonist had no face um and in this case also nice face is placed onto all those characters attacking him in all those dream sequences so he's put a face to his trauma and he's purged it essentially um yep. a dude died as a result but you know we're not going to talk about that <laughs> but um also nice like specter also appears at the at the facility and uh when when chiba and shima see that after she slapped him and after they both awoken she's like well, that ain't good. <laughs> um, but yeah, they take a walk out on uh, the sky bridge that we've been on numerous times in the film. And then, oh, hey, that is a large ass doll, isn't it? <laughs> I Yeah, I, I can't lie. Uh, first watch of that, I didn't expect it. And when it happened, I was I had that, oh, shit moment, you know, like. Don't expect it. Then when it happens, you're like, okay, we're about to get to the climax of the film. There's This has to be it because it's just right, just in their face, 
as they're on the phone, and you know, like when you get a dial tone after you've tried to call something or if like a number's been disconnected, it's like, well, the number you have reached has been disconnected, but the little voice mail piece starts talking gibberish like the rest of the dreamscape has been for the entire film. It's pretty so, great. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty great. And then she just has this high-pitched, or the doll has this really high-pitched shrieking giggle that is terrifying as shit. And it just shatters the glass out of the sky bridge, and uh, all hell is about to break loose in, in this town. Yeah, uh, there are very few things that are scarier than uh, a thing that is a, is seeking to do horrible things to you that has a big old smile on its face. <laughs> For some reason, that just makes it all the all the more worse. Um, yeah. but yeah, a giant fucking doll, hundreds of feet tall. It's smashing up the facility and chasing the two of them up. And then Paprika arrives on the scene and is like, you guys gotta just, just follow me. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> yeah. Cause Chiba yeah. even, she's like, what are you doing here? Because it's, it's not like she's transformed. It's, it's now because the dreams and reality have merged. Paprika can exist as her own being, you know, to answer anybody's questions, you know, about that. Like, well, how is that possible? This is how. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just just shut up and jump through the tv with me exactly yeah exactly <laughs> so they literally do that all three of them so like as richie had said dream dream world fantasy and reality have collided so there are no fucking rules it is motherfucking thunderdome <laughs> you've cracked me up about like shut up and jump through the tv just now <laughs> you cracked me up about that like the, the the people that are are not like i don't believe what i'm seeing and then people start popping out of their camera hi i'm paprika and welcome to jackass if they fucking jumps out the goddamn camera <laughs> scares the shit out of people <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, paprika's continually using this ability to just hop into whatever whatever like passageways that exist whether they be billboards or advertisements or television screens oh, or what have so you cool. and she's like just get on the fucking horse it's like why because shut up and get on the fucking horse and <laughs> <laughs> chiba is still kind of resisting um and it just so happens that uh the tokita uh, robot uh, a giant fucking robot uh is part of the parade and has broken off and is just smashing shit but also uh assists them uh, Tokita with the assist, with the equalizer, if you will, uh, in the form of a barrage of missiles uh, into the giant doll that's been chasing them and flattens that doll. Uh, but he is very much out of his mind. He is not in his right mind. Uh, but Chiba, as Richie had mentioned, clearly has some form of connection to him. So instead of following Paprika and Shima to wherever wherever the fuck she wants to go, but Paprika st strikes me as maybe a bit of an airhead. Like she, she follows her whimsy, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's exactly. Like, it's like, it's like no trip to the grocery store will just be a trip to the grocery store. <laughs> it's like, there will be adventures. It will be utterly exhausting uh, by my standards. Anyway, <laughs> it's like, lady, can we just do the things that we said we were going to do? It's like, I just need milk and eggs. God damn it. <laughs> it's like, do we have to skip everywhere? Seriously. Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Everything in this world is not beautiful. <laughs> it's like some days it's just a rainy fucking day. It's normal. We don't have to skip everywhere. But anyway, uh, Chiba goes to visit uh, the Tokita robot, and uh, he kind of recognizes her, although he does have a tendency to eat whatever's put in front of him. He even says as much earlier in the film. Yep. Uh, so he picks her up, and she tries to talk some sense into him, and he's just like, I should probably eat you. So he does. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. But he has a he has a line where there's this comedic beat where there's just this pause after arguably our protagonist has just been swallowed by a giant robot man. And he's just like, 
That was all right, but it needs some spice. Maybe paprika. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. It's cute. Yeah. Uh, but then we, we discover that the center of the city uh, has a deep fucking hole to, to nowhere in it, which presumably is like the epicenter of Inui and uh, Osanai's like merging, I guess. Mm. Um, it's never really explicitly stated what this is. However, the two bartenders are with Konakawa kind of surveying the, the scene and they refer to it as just another world. Like, like th- there's no hell associated with it. There's no, it, there's no title bestowed upon it. It's just a different world. And Konakawa's like, what do you mean by that? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's different. It's different. <laughs> I don't know. I just work here. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, like he, he probes for further explanation and, both the movie and the characters just outright reject that. They're just like, yeah. not here for that. <laughs> like, <Shit>. Moving on. <laughs> it's pretty great. It is. Um, and that sequence where uh, he swallows uh, Chiba also, you you get the, uh, the big reveal, or I'd say big reveal, but this is where you, you again, you see that Chiba is starting to live for herself now, or she's living, as uh, Paprika puts it, uh, to, as her true self. Because... There's like kind of a, a dream within a dream sequence of the whole elevator sequence at the beginning and how it kind of plays out differently in her dream where she's sitting there and she pulls him out of the elevator and he sits down and he's just like, um, you know, he kind of just sits there and kind of sulks, you know, it's like, he's like, you know, I'm just a big screw up and all this other stuff. But then she actually starts telling him all the things that she loves about him. And that's why he's so fun and all this other shit. And it's just like, Oh like that's a that's a real heartwarming moment where it's like she's not a bitch and she's being like you know I I really love you at the at the end of everything even all the shit we go through and have been through and the you know all the for all the things that you are not you were all the things that I also like really love in life and it's you know the Shima and Paprika even notice this and and she's like oh she's dreaming and you see like the robot version of him sitting down and uh her you know uh not physically sitting there but just like uh a go- not ghost either it's just like a little you know outline of her holding him and just like and then she disappears and then he just <laughs> falls the fuck over and he's like oh way to ruin the moment <laughs> uh, it, it's really cute though how they they have the visual parallel where it's like they right. play out the exact same pantomime like they have the exact same choreography only differences two different locations and he's a robot <laughs> but like like the body languages of the two sequences completely match so that that moment that we had highlighted earlier where uh, she looks at herself in her own reflection and says like i haven't been doing a lot of dreaming i haven't been examining my own dreams as of late it's very important that paprika points out it's like oh she's dreaming uh, for mm-hmm. arguably the first time in the movie like she's having her own dream it just happens to be a very personal fantasy of an alternate sequence that we kind of began the movie with where it's like, mm-hmm. this is what could have been. These are the things she could have said. Um, and it's, it's really heartwarming when it comes, when it comes about. But in the meantime, uh, a giant Inui, like, so our, our big bad is the biggest and baddest that he's going to get in the movie. Uh, he emerges from this hole and uh, the skyscrapers of the, of Tokyo measure up to about his kneecap uh, it's a giant motherfucker. <laughs> and I have no real clue what his motivation is supposed to be. All I know is it's not good. 
Uh, so he objects to the idea of, uh, I think, toying with people's dreams. I think his, if I'm understanding correctly, and please interject if you if you have a better interpretation. But the way I understood it was that uh, the DC Mini is a wonderful technology that allows you to inhabit other people's dreams. But his objection to it is that dreams are meant to run wild and just be, and by human beings uh, futzing with them or altering them or trying to steer them, they're upsetting some sort of natural order. Um, and also he desires power of some sort i i it all it, there's a lot going on and i didn't get a whole lot out of it but by the time you get to the end of the movie i didn't care so richie right, do you have right. a better interpretation like a clearer <laughs> that, one that's pretty close i mean he he does desire ultimate power at the end and the way to gain that power is because obviously he has a problem with the fact that he's uh, paraplegic and cannot walk so that's also kind of like a uh, a stick in his wheel where it's like no pun intended but like literally and so with doing all this, he's functional, like walking again, which is why he wanted Os- um, Osanai's body to be able to walk again. And also, he he wants to just dominate. Like that's his entire, um, it's his entire purpose is using. Like the DC Mini would have hindered him from doing that because, in a way, the DC Mini is also like um, policing the your dreams in a way. So, I could see why he wanted to do away with it, and he becomes this this mass. He's like, well, I'm going to make my own world. And unfortunately, he doesn't realize that, um, you know, and this is something that uh, Konakawa, Paprika, Shima, and the two bartenders point out while he's growing, like, astronomically huge, is that in the ultimate balance of any world or any life, you can't have, like, one thing without the other. And these are not, like, the exact ones, but, like, we'll get to the the real one. Um, You know, it's like, oh, yeah, ketchup and mustard, fucking, like, uh, ham and burger, you know? It's like, you can't have, like, one without the other. But, you know, they're like man and woman. And then, you know, they all kind of come to that conclusion and a little bit of spice to add things up. Paprika. So Paprika essentially jumps into the robot body, I guess, to merge with Chiba. And she becomes this whole other person. It's essentially just a combination of Chiba and Paprika together as a different female body, which she starts out as, they're both naked, by the way, which I don't understand, like, the big fucking thing about, like, <laughs> fucking naked people, whatever. But so she's a, a little girl, and then she starts essentially absorbing and swallowing this giant fucking massive man that he has become. <laughs> and she's eating him, and she's fucking, I know that sounds bad. I don't mean it that way, but it's bad. <laughs> but she starts fucking growing, like, into a full-blown woman, R-rated nipples and everything. And yep. she's, yeah, she sucks him completely in and essentially destroys the night, I guess, the nightmare of this dream, because he essentially is a nightmare, and I would assume that her counterpart is that of hope and inspiration of, of a dream. Uh, and all the, the darkness just disappears, and... I guess uh, has she has suppressed the dream from the world of reality and all is fine, but there's a shitload of destruction left in the wake. And she just kind of disappears herself, which is it's really strange because she doesn't die. You know, she, like, she doesn't die herself. And uh, neither did a lot of the, well, a few of the characters did, obviously, but uh, yeah, she, she didn't die. I thought I thought she did at first, like when I first watched it, and then I found out she lived through it. I was like, what the fuck? I, mean, that, I think that might be the only thing that I'm still, to this day, as much as I love this movie, 
I wanted a little more explanation about, but I don't think we really need one. Like you said, like once you get to the movie, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, like well, we're we're here. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess one interpretation could be that much like Konakawa, the way he conquered his trauma was he 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 concluded a story essentially. Correct. Um, in this case, we have a, a woman who is dreaming, uh, who is self actualized and concluded the nightmare by concluding her dream essentially. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so by winning out uh, at the end of it, somehow she preserved herself. I guess that's one interpretation of it. But um, it's it's kind of a heroic moment. But it be, because of the quality of the animation and the way they go about the like the choreography of the sequence, it's actually kind of horrifying. It <laughs> really it is. is. It's this giant little girl like literally sucking up a nightmare. So it begins as like the the dark mass surrounding Inui, but it's an extension of him. So it becomes him at some point. And the way they render it is really fascinating because, like, it literally sucks in like air, like like the, this little girl draws in breath of of this dark mass, and with every gulp, so like its stomach becomes distended, and then its its stomach compresses down, and then it like springs up into a, a larger, more adult form of a little girl, mm-hmm. and does this in a series of gulps, and then the 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 final stroke of it though is like utterly horrifying because like he's like. What the fuck are you doing, little girl? You ruined my nightmare. <laughs> and he like puts his hand on her face, and she sucks him through his palm, and his hand mm-hmm. folds in on itself and goes into her mouth, and she literally sucks him into her mouth. It's like yeah. it's very skillfully animated. But if you take two seconds to think about what you're witnessing and the fact that this person has a consciousness, this is fucking awful. <laughs> like, yeah, dude, like, this is a horrible way to go. <laughs> yeah, no shit. It's like ah, god. <laughs> But yes, uh, she she grows into a, a grown ass woman, uh, and then the sun comes out to play. And uh, yeah, we do see that all the destruction that was wrought though has stuck around. So a lot of property damage. Probably a lot of people died. I mean, we did get a, a couple shots of salary men jumping off of the rooftops. I uh, did forget. that. I don't think they survived that fall. <laughs> oh no, no. No, they didn't even have umbrellas to like you know float down with her and no, shit. Like, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, poor so the conclusion of this movie does have a body count. It's just we don't explicitly like see it. It's just like if you think about it for two seconds, that was a lot of explosions. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know it's funny you you mentioned the salary man because I I I forgot completely about that like just now. But it's not like I always forget about it. But just I guess in this moment forgot about it because that was one of the that was one of the spots in the trailer that I was like what are they doing? You know, and then seeing it in context in this movie, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> they're fucking jumping to their deaths off this roof. Fuck. Oh. Yeah. Again, it, it's not bad in the movie, but like if you take two seconds to think about what the, what the end result of that is, it's probably not pretty. No. <laughs> Cause they're diving off to parade and you're like, oh yeah, it's that song again. Fuck yeah. Oh wait, they died. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, after uh, the finale with Inui, uh, we cut back to a hospital bed and Tokita wakes up. So we see that he's all right. Uh, Konakawa and Shima and Chiba are all there. Uh, so the Scooby squad mostly made it through unscathed. Uh, Himuro is never seen again in the movie. So I think I think he didn't come out of it. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure he's done for, or at yeah. least a vegetable. Um but uh, Konakawa, I like that there's just this beat where like Tokita and Chiba have a little conversation. It's like, yeah, you're back. Awesome. And then Konakawa is like, well, uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just kind of scoots off the bed. Yeah, yeah, and I think Shima alludes to like 
uh, Konakawa maybe wanting to take a shot at Chiba, and he's like, "Sorry about that, but she's she's into the big guy, you know. <laughs> what are you gonna do?" <laughs> yeah, because he says, "Well, I guess I've been dumped." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you gonna do? Right. <laughs> but it's neat that he never he never made a fool of himself, though, so he gets to walk away with his pride intact. That's right. Um, but we get like a nice little payoff to his story. Well, we already concluded his nightmare and his story, but. Um, he kind of has just a, a brief little conversation with uh, the friend that's been haunting his dreams and his friend uh, basically sends him off. He, he says like, you didn't finish our film, but you, you kind of did in your own way by becoming a cop like you, like the character you were playing in the film that we were making. So it's like mm. you, you chase the same dream. You just went about it in a roundabout fashion. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that little payoff because like it's a very happy ending for that character. Yeah, and he's almost released from his his pain at that moment at that moment in time too. It's it's a very uh, very well done. Like we said, it comes full circle, and all the payoffs were just amazing. Yeah, and the 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 final bit in the in the website slash uh, bar uh, where Konakawa goes, presumably for maybe the last time, uh, he gets a little note from the bartenders. They're like, "This is from." paprika slash chiba and uh the way they phrase it it's like yeah uh, miss chiba's last name's gonna be tokita from now on just so you know (laughs) it's it's cute it's an interesting way of phrasing that yeah um but yeah it turns out to be a very happy ending for all involved um and then in this last letter that she sends to konakawa she mentions like yeah i saw a really good movie called dreaming kids you should definitely go check it out and as we had talked about earlier like he has a odd relationship with films but now that he's come out of things and he's a stronger person for it he can go back to enjoying movies so he's like yeah i should definitely go do that and then the camera actually like pans across a series of advertisements that are all satoshi kon's films up to this point uh so it's like perfect blue millennium actress tokyo godfathers and then the last one is called dreaming kids um which his final project which to date is incomplete um it has been hinted that uh some of the producers involved with production uh, have kept some of the animation assets like apparently it's partially animated i don't know if it'll continue life as an animated feature however the producers have said like if if somebody wants to pick it up someday um they make explicit mention of an overseas filmmaker so maybe they want to pitch it to like an american or an international filmmaker as opposed to an in-house uh japanese filmmaker but the the project was called dreaming machine um and it it ceased production obviously when when its director passed away yeah and uh that's that's exactly right it was halfway finished and uh his teammate on you know that entire production team said that we would probably never finish it ourselves only because it wouldn't be satoshi's movie at that point so they would they wanted try, they wanted to and like you said I'm not sure if they ever will but they wanted to find a way to get it completed at least for him but in a way to honor him at the same time I just I don't think it ever will come out honestly because it's been so long but I know there is an art book of Satoshi's that like you can buy and there's a lot of artwork from that film in there and a lot of explanation as to what it was going to be about it was essentially like a road movie for kids he was going to make a, a PG or G-rated film for kids which is crazy to think, you know, like he's kind of done it all. 
you know, if he would have made that, he would have had an entire array of ratings for his entire uh, filmography at that point. He would have literally made everything from a family G-rated film all the way to an R-rated film. And, you know, I love that the final shot of Paprika is there's there's no like need to go any further than him walking up to the ticket booth and putting like you know his currency on the table and just saying you know um one please and it cuts to black and then you get the acoustic uh lyric version uh with susan Wahirasawa and uh, the uh, white tiger field play which is gorgeous oh god that's such a beautiful song and and, and a very very great ending to a fantastic film I'll i'll never get tired of watching this movie yeah, I I might actually run out and grab the Blu-ray of it. Uh, I I've rented this one, but um, now that I've seen it all the way through, it's like yeah, I could see myself revisiting this one a few times in the future. It's a it's a fantastic film. Uh, if, even if you can't get on board with the narrative, like if you have any appreciation for animation, like some of the things that they do in this are are utterly just glorious. Like like really fantastic stuff. Um, really well planned and actualized uh, on film like like I said the, the man's editing and transitions are the kind of stuff that I would like to see find their way into more mainstream films because mm. it's really creative and honestly fairly simple if you really think about it it's just you need to be somewhat fearless to, to break certain rules and not hesitate about like what that might mean to the person taking it in it's like you know mm. maybe maybe have some confidence in your viewer and their ability to follow a story regardless of like how jarring some of the visual language of of it could come across like to, to non-mainstream audiences but right. yeah uh, awesome awesome beautiful film uh, i i really had a lot of fun especially with the konakawa character and his whole arc and like you said the the way they end the film it's it's i like i like when a movie knows when it when it's reached the right point to stop because it's like, yeah, we, we came full circle with his character. He had a complete arc. And we already saw, like, in the grandest form imaginable, like, Chiba kind of self-actualize. Like, literally, like, the grandest way imaginable. So it's like, right. we don't need to have any more to that other than to know that, yeah, she had a happy ending too. Cool. Roll credits. Awesome music. Yeah. <laughs> Stick around. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, though. Seriously. Uh, like, because I remember when we were talking about doing this uh, this episode together, and you had said that you had just seen Perfect Blue, and you weren't really too familiar with a lot of Satoshi's work, and I was just thinking, oh my god, he's gonna, I, and, and I'm glad I was right. I was like, oh, he's gonna love this movie. Like I, I yeah, I was, I was really confident you would probably you would like this one. You know, more so than like, oh, I don't know if he'll really get on board with it. I was pretty confident you you would enjoy this one. It's a great watch, man. Yeah, I try to tell anybody like. You know, and this is with this is with all of Satoshi's work, honestly. But it's not even just anime or animation. It's like, do you? And I tell people before they watch any of his films, would you like a masterclass in cinema? No bullshit. Would you like a masterclass in cinema from a very talented director? Well, what genre is it? It doesn't matter. Do you want a masterclass in cinema? Like, <laughs> I will fucking show you Perfect Blue. I will show you Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, Paranoia Agent, and paprika and i will show you all fucking five pieces if you let me but it's literally like okay well along with the master class what genre would you like because there's a, a plethora to choose from and you can't go wrong with any of this man's work and i i feel like you know paprika is like i mentioned earlier it's very much a 
it's it's a culmination of all the work he's put in from the various years and in, into one film, and it was uh, perfectly executed in my opinion. So, yeah, yeah, like, like you said, uh, unfortunate that he passed so early, but the man the man really didn't ever miss. Like like pretty much everything he put out is gold. So uh, you're very safe and picking any starting point in his filmography you're, you're almost guaranteed to have a good time with it but yeah uh, mm-hmm. thank you so much for suggesting this as a as a watch it was it was on my to-do list since it came out and i'm actually frankly kind of surprised i never got around to it until now <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad i finally got a chance to pull the trigger on that but um in addition to that thank you so much for joining me today richie i really appreciate you helping out with the show um it's really great getting to know you and, and chatting with you about an awesome movie um, but before we go, uh, do you want to let the folks at home know where they can find you and your fucking awesome podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, and yeah, dude, Trevor, thanks a lot for having me on too. And I, I had a great time, you know, chatting and everything with you and, you know, talking about great movies. So I appreciate that. Um, if you guys out there would like to listen to me babble on about cult cinema, music, television, film of any kind, really, uh, my friend and I do a podcast called the super media bros and we have an episode out every Friday or Saturday, depending. Uh, we have a bi-weekly series called cult cinema showdown where we take two cult films and stick them against one another and pick a winner. And usually those are a really fun time just because we get to riff on a lot of stupid shit. And then sometimes we throw, you know, some, some blockbusters in there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter primarily, uh, that's that's the social media we use the most. So if you want to come interact with us there, it's at supermediabros underscore on Twitter. Or you, if you want to go listen to all of our episodes, past, present, and future, supermediabrospodcast.com. Uh, we are part of the Odd Pods Media Network. So if you'd like to follow that account, it's at Odd Pods Media on Twitter. Yeah, like I said, uh, any podcast that has reviews posted for both Akira and Suburban Commando, uh, they get filed away in my, like, yeah, th- these guys... These are my kind of guys, drawer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were fun episodes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, thanks again, Richie. But um, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find all of that located on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the Instagrams at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter at Catching Cinema. So hit us up there. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to get back to you. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Uh, but that being said, uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>